0: This is Jocko podcast number 279 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Helicopter blades slashed through the hot sky, the roar of engines deafening as the pilot twisted and turned on our final approach. Crammed into the back with my men, I tried to keep my balance by tensing my legs and focusing my gaze on the machine gun in the helicopter's door my kit was heavy on my shoulders and sweat poured into my eyes from under the rim of my helmet my palms were wet as they gripped the rifle I pulled it closer to my chest and prepared myself for what was to come the airman behind the machine gun turned to me his face was covered by a scarf and the dark visor of his helmet but I knew what he it meant when he held up his index finger I turned and shouted to my men one minute one minute to landing and whatever was waiting there for us looking into the eyes of my young soldiers I saw steely resolve the hardness of the paratrooper flying into battle I was closest to the rear door which was now winching fully open there was no doubt in my mind that I had to be the first one down the ramp I had waited years for this moment and now was my time I'd practiced it over and over again on grass fields, in mock-up structures, and on the real things during exercises all over the world. But this was different. For the first time in my life, I was flying into war. Our mission was a simple one. To kill or capture a Taliban bomb maker. A bomb maker called Haji Mohammed, infamous for making the improvised bombs that were responsible for the deaths of dozens of British and allied soldiers. We'd spent a week poring over maps and aerial photographs of the village in which he was thought to live. My platoon, number eight platoon on attachment to a company of the third battalion of the parachute regiment was given the honor of landing first right in Haji Muhammad's back garden. And it was our task to surround his house. It was a dangerous mission, but as the seconds counted down and I looked out the rear of the door of the helicopter towards the dusty plains below, I felt a tremendous sensation of both trepidation and sheer excitement. It was a lot of responsibility to shoulder, but I wanted to carry it. The helicopter got closer to the ground, whipping the Afghan dust into the air until it was a thick cloud around us. Ten seconds, shouted the airman, holding tightly to a rope. The door was now fully open. The ramp hit the floor with a clunk and a shutter went through the airframe as the wheels touched down. Everyone wobbled but kept their feet. They knew how important it was to stay upright and get off the heli, the heli quickly. The Taliban had spies everywhere, scouts that reported the movement of helicopters. Every second that we delayed deplaning was a second for the enemy to train their weapons and kill those on the ramp. Go, 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 the airmen shouted. Myself and my men picking up the call so that it rippled through the aircraft. And then we were running, gritting our teeth as though that would stop the bullets that may await us. My feet touched down on the Afghan soil and I breathed in the dirt as I ran through the cloud that the helicopter's blades stirred up all around us. My rifle was up at eye level and I looked over my sights ready to snap shoot anyone that posed a threat to my men. My soldiers followed me. I felt like a giant leading them from a metal beast into the jaws of death. Except that when the helicopter lifted away and the dust settled, we were quite alone. Nobody home. Shit. I put some of my men into defensive positions and took others with me to search the house. This was still a dangerous time as the Taliban were not above booby-trapping their own homes. Other than a few sacks of opium, the drug of choice in those parts, we found nothing. I walked back outside and was shrugging off the disappointment of another quiet mission when a whip-like sound echoed across the fields followed immediately by a crack. It wasn't the noise you hear in the films. It was altogether more visceral and unnerving. Incoming, shouted my platoon sergeant. I shouted at the men to jump into a nearby ditch and return fire. They looked at me, unbelieving. It was like being on an exercise on Salisbury Plain, except the noises were not the dull simulators we'd been accustomed to. These were real and violent. Somebody was shooting with the evident intention of killing us. 300 meters away, I saw the enemy moving in a line of trees. I took aim and fired. It was the start of a very long day. And that right there is an excerpt from a book called The Art of Exploration by a former British Army officer named Levison Wood, who served and led combat operations in Afghanistan, but who seemed to have found an equivalent level of excitement and danger as a writer, photographer, filmmaker, and explorer, and we're lucky enough to have him on the show tonight to share some of his experiences with us. Levison, thanks for coming on, man.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> That's a good way to start <clears throat> this thing off.
1: Brings back some memories, <laughs> eh? <hey? laughs>
0: <laughs> Freaking good, good way to kick it off. Um, before we jump into your, your career in the Army, let's, let's start at the beginning. Let's start about. Let's talk about your child's childhood, and and you grew up in England. Sure. Yep. Um, Stoke on Trent.
1: That's it. Not the, many people have heard of it, <laughs>
0: and that's that's where you actually grew up.
1: Yeah. So I I was born and raised in a small village um, just outside of Stoke on Trent, right in the middle of England, sort of halfway between Manchester and Birmingham, the kind of place that not many people sort of travel to. They just travel past it, um, <laughs> and I think it was it was for that reason that I was. Always from a very young age, curious about the outside world, I was very keen to get away from Stoke-on-Trent. Um, <laughs> it, it will always be home, but but yeah, from a, from a very early age, I was always excited by the prospect of of travelling out into the big wide world. It was something that not many members of my family had done, um, but I always knew that there was there was more to life than the provincial sort of suburbs of, of my hometown, and and that's what inspired me.
0: And Stoke-on-Trent, that's a city where. You're in the, I guess it was prior to the pits shutting down, you were in the pits or there's a, a giant pottery factory, right? Yeah. Isn't it famous for making
1: pottery? Stoke-on-Trent is, is the heart of the British ceramic industry. It has been for, for centuries. And um, sadly, you know, a lot of those, um, those industries, the, the mines and, and the pottery industry, died a, a bit of a death through the mid-20th century. So there was a lot of unemployment. There was a lot of poverty in Stoke-on-Trent in, in the 80s when I grew up and um, And so, there weren 't that many opportunities. not many people had the opportunity to sort of travel very much, but I was very fortunate to be to be grown up in a, in a family of teachers. Both my parents were teachers. they encouraged this spirit of curiosity and um, you know encouraged me to to read a lot. So I read as a youngster all about history, geography, travels, all those stories of exploration of um, of those very hairy men in in the nineteenth century that went to the poles, you know Livingstone and uh, Shackleton and scott and uh, you know, those were my heroes. So it was growing up, my, my dad read me a lot of books about exploration, Lawrence of Arabia, people like that. Um, so I think from about the age of seven or eight, I was determined to somehow follow in their footsteps, which wasn't exactly a very realistic uh, sort of uh, thing to, to go to my careers officer and say, I want to be an explorer. But that's exactly <laughs> what I did. And he sort of laughed at me and said, OK, well, let's see.
0: Well, I'm kind of thinking you must have been even in a worse position than me. So when I was a little kid, you know, I, lo- I liked rock and roll music. And so when I started playing guitar and thinking, okay, I'm going to write some riffs, yeah. but it didn't take me very long to figure out that, Hey, all the, you know, if Jimmy Page already wrote that riff and Tony Iommi already wrote those riffs, so what am I going to do? How am I going to write better riffs than those guys? So you had to be even in a worse position because <laughs> the world's you been can, explored. <laughs> yeah. Actually you can make up new riffs. That's possible. But you know, the most of the known world it's been explored. Yeah. Yeah, so you're you're in a worse spot than I was in.
1: Well, my, you know, I, I grew up with those stories, but I was also encouraged by stories of my grandfather. My granddad was a soldier in, um, in the British Army. He served in India and Burma in the Far East, fighting against the Japanese. And um, he told me these stories, which felt, whilst it was still a long time ago, actually to hear them firsthand, somebody who'd been to the jungles of India, who'd been to the mountains of 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 east asia that was like mind-blowing for me as as a kid who'd never really traveled beyond the 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 confines of the united kingdom so that's what i wanted to do i wanted to go and see not necessarily go with my pith helmet and sort of khaki shorts and and with a big union flag but but at the very least to go and see with with my own eyes the, the the kind of places that very few people had had traveled to um within my own so a social circle, really. So it started pretty humbly, and, and and just going off backpacking, and and you know doing what a lot of youngsters do, and, and um, travel around the world on a on a tight budget, and that was what I was determined to do from a, from a very young age.
0: Now, what was your relationship with your grandfather? How long was is he still alive today?
1: No, he's not. So he passed away when I was about eighteen. So you know, but but growing up, it was like I say, it was those those really exciting stories and pretty gruesome stories sometimes. I know, if, if
0: it, Like if you were in Burma fighting the Japanese, good Lord.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and he was not only that, he was on pretty much one of the first ships into Japan. He was part of the occupying force in Japan. He was based in Hiroshima after they dropped the A-bomb. So some of his stories were just like, you know, crazy. Yeah.
0: And what about your dad? Did your dad... um wasn't your dad in the army as well so my dad was cent? in the
1: he was a reservist so you know throughout the the 70s and 80s um, you know his period it was it was the Cold War so he, mm-hmm. he you know he, he likes to tell me he was off fighting the Russians in Germany you know it, it, it really you know realistically he was he was out there um, a lot of digging trenches on the plains of, of Germany but <laughs> obviously no no actual fighting but um, but yeah he, he always encouraged me to to take an interest in the military Um and um it was things like you know he was a cadet instructor and, and so on so i remember growing up you know he he'd sometimes bring bring his rifles back home and things like that and and uh, as a kid he he'd give me a, a uniform and if i was if i was a good good kid he'd uh, give me an extra stripe and uh, if I, if i was naughty he'd he'd rip one off my arm so that's kind of that was how i grew up yeah
0: and w- when you um were you a you're saying that you're reading all the time mm. does that mean you were a good student
1: I was, I think I, I, I was always curious and, and that helps. I think that's a good start. You might be so. the first
0: person on the podcast that was a good, ste- have we ever had <laughs> any good students on here? No. Everyone's, no. everyone's just bad students, <laughs> myself included. So, so you were reading and you were doing pretty good in school. Your parents were, so both my parents were teachers as well. Sure, yeah. And one was history, one was English. And, and people go, oh, that's right. And I was like, no, no, I didn't do, it. We, I didn't do any homework. Um, Were they teaching in your school? No, they weren't. Was yeah. your dad teaching in or no, your parents? No, no, no.
1: So that, yeah, I think that helped. I, I don't think I would have liked having my teachers as uh, my parents as my own teachers.
0: But they, they got you on the reading path. And I, it, must be, it must be something born. Like, you just must have been more naturally curious than me. I was, like, throwing rocks at my friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did that as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I was definitely a bit of a rebel, and I got into lots of trouble as a kid. I, I think I was just naturally um, inclined to to be curious about history particularly, and that it was, it was reading about, you know, the ancient Greeks, Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, the Vikings. It was those sort of... Ex- exciting quite you know quite masculine manly stories that that really inspired me to to sort of take an interest and and i did from a from an early age um and of course it's it's those sort of things that you you read and then develop i I mean one of the first books that my dad read to me uh was was a children's version of the odyssey and i thought you know one day i'd love to go off on a ship and explore the world you know (laughs) i mean hopefully not lose all my men in the process but uh you know Uh, But yeah, I I definitely thank um, those 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 early years for for my what I'm doing now
0: So the weird thing about one of the big differences about England and America is the schooling system and Mm -hmm. kind of the way you Test to get into certain levels and my wife's a Brit. So I I have some idea of it but you so you went to what what uh, Painsley is that right? Painsley Catholic School. That's where you went to
1: school. Yeah. So it was a non-fee-paying. It was just a, an ordinary state school, um, but it was you know it was a Catholic school. That, you know, Catholic schools um, were, were sometimes you know considered uh, uh, better in t- in in some ways. It had a, a real bent towards science. Um, that wasn't my bag at all. But <laughs> um, but good teachers, and um, it was one of those schools that that you can you can flourish in with with the right attitude, but but also you can get in a lot of trouble if you don't have the right <laughs> attitude. And I, I sort of did both. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, and what, what sports were you playing?
1: Um, so I, I wouldn't say I was hugely into sports. I, I preferred, I was into athletics. So I was a good runner as a kid, um, but I wasn't wasn't really known for its team sports. And that kind of frustrated me in in some ways because, you know, I knew that I was kind of, sold on the idea of the army from probably the age of about 11 or 12, in fact. So I knew that I should probably be doing rugby or or something like that, but it wasn't really on offer in my school. So I had to be creative with with what I was doing. So I did a lot of personal fitness, did a lot of running like i said um i was interested in boxing from a young age and that that's something that i i took up and, and that followed me into my army career as well
0: so what age did you start boxing at
1: um i mean i was training from probably 15 16. um when i went to university at 18 i was in the university club and then like i said did it throughout the army as well
0: so i know you you went on like a this is a, i don't know if americans do this or not they go like traveling yeah they, that's what you all call it, right? My wife did it. Oh, yeah. traveling, right? <laughs> and so, and so you did that too. Like yeah. in America, you graduate high school, then you, if you're either going in the military, you're sure. getting a job, or you're you're going. There's no traveling. Mo- yeah. <laughs> there's no traveling thing. Echo, did you go traveling? No, sir. No, we're not going traveling for a year. But it's real normal. Oh yeah, no, it anyone. certainly is
1: now. You know, when I when I left school at the age of eighteen in two thousand one. um yeah, I knew that I wanted to join the army. And I was sort of, I really wanted to go to Sandhurst and go in as an officer. And um, But because of my background, I wasn't at, you know, one of these posh private schools, I hadn't, you know, necessarily got the sports background. So I knew I needed to do something that would give me a bit of an edge. And it was it was a- sh- Go drinking
0: in Australia. <laughs>
1: exactly that. But it, it was actually a, a stroke of a fortune. So when I was a kid, I was, I was doing every odd job going. I worked in factories. I worked in shops. I, worked, I even flipped burgers at McDonald's just to try and get some cash together.
0: I flipped burgers at Wendy's. There we go. There you go. <laughs> it's the character, character great, building stuff. The making of great military leadership, <laughs> flipping burgers. Get some. 100%. <laughs> um,
1: so I was doing all of that to try and earn a bit of bit of cash before going to university. Um, one of the jobs I was doing was working at a theme park. Um, place called Alton Towers, and I think you know I was basically I must have been on one of the rides upside down and, and lost my wallet, fell out my pocket, and I was a bit upset because it had my entire week's earnings of about five pounds in there. <laughs> so I was quite surprised a couple of days later when the wallet was returned in the post, and not only was the the five pounds still in there, but there was also a note from the person who had found the wallet, and it was actually signed off. There was there was a note saying, "Don't be such a." You know, I won't say the word. <laughs> but don't be such an <laughs> asshole for um, for losing your wallet. Keep keep uh, better sort of care of your belongings. and It was signed off by a certain uh, lieutenant. Damn. Um, in the in the Royal Artillery, <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that's a nice nice guy. Obviously, not everyone who'd return a wallet, and um, so I, you know, I, I did the right thing and, and wrote a, a thank you letter back. I think my
0: note would have said, your lesson is costing you five pounds. (laughs) (laughs) That's mine.
1: So I I said, but because I was already interested in a career in the army, I said, have you got any hints or tips on how to get into Sandhurst? And by return of post, came back a six-page essay with all of these really great tips. It was like, you know, go away and, Learn how to you know, read a map and use a compass. Um, this is how many press-ups you need to do to pass the fitness test. All this really useful advice. But the last sentence is something I'll never forget, but it said, above all, travel dot 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 because at the end of the day you'll have some great stories in the bar and the mess <laughs> so i took that to heart so i decided based on that letter which was all the this serendipitous result of me losing my wallet that i was going to go away and do what we call in england a gap year which is exactly what you say go drinking in australia so my, my i told my dad and he said what on earth is a gap year this wasn't particularly popular you know at that time and I said, you know, I'm going to go find myself on the beaches of Thailand. And he said, well, if you do that, you can go get yourself a bloody job. Um, so that's when I had to go and start earning more cash. And, and But eventually I did. I went away backpacking. Um, and at the age of 18, you know, to, to literally just disappear off. And the first place I went traveling was actually in South Africa, which is pretty pretty dodgy, you know, in that time. I went to Zimbabwe. Uh, was, which at the age of eighteen it was the first time I'd had a, a gun pulled on me uh, by a taxi driver who tried to rob me. So it was all really quite, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of it, it teaches you a lot about independence. So what did you, what'd you learn say.
0: about uh, how to handle getting a gun pulled on you by the taxi driver? Well, you
1: can't just throw that out there and think we're just going <laughs> to let it ride. So, so I've been in. So you're in Zimbabwe. So <laughs> in Zimbabwe, I was traveling. I'd met this random Dutch dude who was much older than me. I was I was eighteen. This guy must have been twenty nine, thirty and he was backpacking as well and we were on the same same route and um we got off uh the train at a place called Bulawayo and um we we, we sort of got into a taxi and asked the the price to whatever the the, the next bus station and he said it was going to be 40 dollars which Zimbabwe has dollars so 40 Zim dollars was equivalent of about two US dollars and we were like yeah no problem so we put our bags in the in the trunk of the car off we went and it was like two minutes around the corner we thought okay we got out and he said okay 40 dollars we got the Zimbabwe dollars out, and he said, no, 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 US dollars, 40 US dollars. And we thought he was joking and laughed at him. He said, no, 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 put his hand in his jacket, pulls out a piston, said 40 US dollars. And uh, we we're like, oh, shit, okay, well, I don't have 40 US dollars. I'm on a budget of about $2 a day, right? So we said, okay, we'll pay, but let us get our bags out. And it was quite a busy, crowded sort of car park. So um, we got, got our bags out of the boot, and um, this guy, this Dutch guy, who's quite a, you know, quite a hefty fella. He said, okay, come over here. And uh, the the taxi driver, put his pistol in, in, in the car and got out. So he was unarmed at the time. And this guy just sort of as he got his um, as he got his bag on his back just headbutted this taxi driver <laughs> right over, and then looked at me and said fucking run so um, i ran and we escaped but this guy then we jumped in another taxi and said drive so but the, the original guy was then chasing us through the streets of of uh, bulawayo so i had my first not only my first sort of uh, gun pulled on me but my first car chase at the age of 18 <laughs> which is all pretty wild but it was those early travels that that sort of encouraged me to sort of, yeah, be careful, be independent-minded, and, and start to think about looking after myself.
0: What are the chances that you made it back through the first year of
1: travels? Um, well, well, after that experience, it was all fairly tame, I have to say, <laughs> but, you know, getting, getting drunk <laughs> in Australia. But it was, no, it was great. And, and and it was probably that first year of travel, really, that motivated me to want to do more. Because, it, you know, apart from that that one sort of moment, it was it was usual backpacking stuff. But throughout my time at university, I went to more and more challenging and interesting places i went to um, in my second year at university i was studying history and um, my particular interest was the history of travel writing so i looked at um, marco polo and his travels i was reading about the hippie trail of the 1960s the great pilgrimages all the big overland journeys so i tried to make all my, my my studies around that so in the, the my summer leave i would try and go to the place that i've been studying around so after one particular module, bear in mind this was in 2001, just after 9-11 had happened so there was a real focus on the Middle East and, and that was a place that, that I was fascinated by because of its the, the history but also what was going on in, in the news at the time. Um, so me and, a, me and a buddy decided one summer that we were going to go and travel around the Middle East. This was in, in 2003 so it was a second, second year at university. Um, the Iraq war was happening and um, we said okay we're going to go to Egypt and just have a look around then we went to israel and then when we were in israel there was um a bomb went off in in jerusalem caused the borders to shut so what we would planned to do was take a take a boat from the 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 coast from Haifa to greece and then go backpacking through europe that was all now not on the cards um my parents thought we thought me and my my mate alex were actually on holiday in greece at the time anyway so they had no (laughs) idea where we where we actually were the only border that was open was to the east to jordan so we went to jordan and then we were in Jordan. Another bomb went off, which meant that we were stuck in Jordan. The only border then was open was actually further east, which was to Iraq. So we took a taxi from the capital of Jordan, Amman, all the way to Baghdad at a cost of twenty dollars. This is I was twenty one at the time, or twenty, and um, I was met by a, a national guardsman on the border who said, uh, "Do you want to buy a gun?" <laughs> he said, "You're going to need it where so you're this going." Is, this
0: is two thousand three. This
1: is two thousand three. And um, we got to Baghdad because it was the only route that was open. When
0: in two thousand three, August. Yeah. So the the wars, it's on.
1: It's on. Yeah, combat operations are just finished, more or less. But the the you know it's before the main insurgency had begun. But right. yeah, stuff was definitely exploding around us <laughs> at the time.
0: And what part of this idea sounded smart to you? <laughs>
1: well, we didn't have another option. We couldn't afford to fly home from Israel because we had no money. And we thought it would just be a, a, bit, a bit of an exciting adventure. And, and uh, so we, we made it to Baghdad, but then we stayed in the Hotel Palestine, oh which was the, um, in the green zone.
0: Oh, I know where that yeah. is. That's freaking crazy. But we
1: couldn't afford a night there because it was 100 bucks, which is a lot of money when you're a student. And so we thought, okay, this was just after somebody had just shot the top of the hotel because they thought there was an Iraqi insurgent. It was actually a camera crew. Um, So we thought if we can sneak up the the fire escape up up the ladders, then we can just sleep amongst the rubble on the roof. So we did that. (laughs) We got onto the roof. And then there happened to be a UK, a British um, film crew filming a a news piece on the roof. And they said, you know, what are you idiots doing here? And we explained that we were sort of backpacking through the Middle East. And uh, this guy, I'll never forget his name, Martin Geisler, who's an ITN correspondent, said, look, um, you must be the first tourist in Iraq. I tell you what, if, if we can do a news piece about you, we'll pay for your room. <laughs> so we ended up staying for a week because we, we couldn't get out of Iraq at this point. And eventually, we managed to escape by hitching a ride with some former SAS mercenary security mm-hmm. guys who were doing the, doing the route up to Tikrit, which was before Saddam Hussein had been captured. So we were actually in, in Tikrit before Saddam, whilst he was still down <laughs> his little hole. So eventually, long story short, we, we got out to Turkey and then eventually did find it find our way back to Europe.
0: Major amount of survivor bias on this whole thing. So (laughs) anyone that's listening, you have to overcome the survivor bias. I'm gonna recommend not particularly following this extreme level of let's just go for it. (laughs) What are you carrying in your backpack?
1: uh as little as possible you know a shemag just so we could kind of blend in we we had to go to the local market to um to buy your sort of traditional how many
0: liters is your backpack
1: uh is just it? just a day sack so we were talking that's 20, 25 what, so you, liters you've yeah. got
0: a 25 liter backpack yeah that's it
1: that's it and we even put that you know those sort of um plastic big bags the sort of check check ones that people go to the market in, in okay <laughs> league, just so it didn't just so we didn't stand out and God. we bought those you know, shiny shiny shirts and black shoes that they, they wear in the Middle East so that we, um, um, you know, I'm quite sort of fairly dark-skinned, so we could blend in. And and it worked, and we were just sort of walking around the markets of Baghdad, and, you know, it was, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do not try this at home. No, <laughs> Do not try this at home. Well, I didn't tell
1: my then. parents until about six months later.
0: <laughs> so, then you finally, so then you finally get out. How did yeah. you get back? You just hitched a ride with some contractors?
1: Yeah, ride up to the um, Turkish border and then. Or hitched all the way home to the UK
0: how hard is it to hitchhike these days
1: um, I actually I was, I hitchhiked last week actually in the States <laughs> um, and you got picked up pretty yeah, easily yeah it's fine um it depends where you are, but I've you know I, I used to love it because it was a, a great way of of meeting interesting people. And um, in fact, when I
0: it's also a good, great way to get, get kidnapped. Up, it can happen. It can happen.
1: But I I think what <laughs> what my trips had taught me was you've got to have a bit of faith in human nature.
0: Yeah, you have way more faith in human <laughs> nature than I do. I've I've done too many of these podcasts to be jumping into, into vehicles with random people. It's weird too because when I was a kid, and I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm ten years older than you, maybe. Yeah, something around ten or twelve. But when I was a kid, hitchhiking was very normal. Yeah, you'd see it all the time. People, you know, you go getting on the highway. There'd yeah, be people yeah. hitchhiking. It was no big deal. If
1: I missed the school bus, we'd hitchhike to yeah. school. Things like that. Yeah. But nowadays, people well, are, people are more it's, scared. It's
0: way more scared, and I, I guess that's part of that. Is just there's more news is more prevalent. Well, like right. when someone gets kidnapped and freaking raped and murdered, yeah. you you know about it. Whereas in 1978, it was just no factor. No, yeah. that in your mind that didn't happen to people. Mm. You trusted human nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, And all this is taking place while you're going to college, so the this, University of Nottingham.
1: That's right, yeah. So I was studying history. Every summer we'd go off and do some crazy adventure. and um, But it all kind of built up, really, to when I graduated in the summer of 2004. Um, so I was still desperate to join the Army, but I'd got the travel bug at this stage. So I wanted to sort of do something even, even bigger and better. And because I'd been studying about these overland journeys, I decided I should really do a bit do a really big one and um so i i, I thought i'd uh, why not actually hitchhike all the way to india following the ancient silk road and following the footsteps of sort of marco polo so so i did i, I hitchhiked from i put my thumb up at nottingham service station uh and five months later somehow made it to uh, to goa in india and, and that was a that was a wild journey because it went through all of europe through russia um, through the caucasus i was in Chechnya. Uh, I went through Iran, Afghanistan, and uh Pakistan over the you know over the Khyber pass and then uh, and, and all of that you know i i was fascinated by the stories of you know victorian exploration, the great game, particularly in central asia afghanistan was was very much on my radar then because um you know the British army had had just sort of made deployments in kabul it hadn't mm-hmm. things hadn 't really kicked off in the south yet at this stage but so it was probably fairly you know safe as it gets in afghanistan to go traveling there um but that was a journey i really really wanted to do and and so yeah off i went and um again very similar thing i just went with a small day sack um i had no money i had i had total of 500 pounds in my bank account that was all that was left from my student loan and i thought i'll see how far i can get and it took five months so i was what are you eating well, a
0: lot, 500 pounds feeds me for like a day and a half.
1: <laughs> it does. It does <laughs> me now. <laughs> what the hell are you eating? So not very much. I was pretty skinny. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was I was just I kind of maybe I was a bit reckless, but I was just really putting my faith in in human nature. So, on um, you know, I hitchhiked the whole way. Um, usually, whoever I was hitchhiking with, you know, I was 21. Right. So. People look at you, and when you tell them what you're doing, they, they think you're either mad or they feel sorry for you. And um, off the back of that, I got invited into people's homes. You know, I met lots of girls that way. <laughs> and, uh, but, but people would look after you, and, and often they would stuff $10 into your pocket on the way out or fill, you, fill your bag with, with, with apples or whatever it might be. So I think I actually came back with more than I started with.
0: Okay, so I'm starting <laughs> to think. I'm starting to feel like maybe things are different in life for you and me. (laughs) I'm just saying maybe you're a sweet looking guy and I'm not. The last time somebody tried to slip me $10 was never. (laughs) You think I get invited into people's homes? That doesn't happen. So you're you're living a charmed life. I'm over here. I feel like the world might've been against me this whole time. (laughs) If I put my thumb out as you did, there's no one's gonna pick me up. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. zero. The percentage of people that pick me up is zero.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, it wouldn't happen these days for me. I don't think. I think it was definitely a thing when you're younger. It's it's far more likely to to happen. I don't think I would. I would How so many pairs of to...
0: pants are you bringing with
1: you? I went fully light scales. I, I like had zero. Varied, like, you just bring I the pants like, that you're wearing. I had yeah one pair of one pair of pants. Uh, you know a couple of shirts that's it really and uh, it was it was great the freedom the liber- you know the liberation of it all it was it was it was brilliant i was just sleeping at the side of the road i had one poncho uh, sorry i had a bivy bag and a, ground, and a sleeping pad? Bag. ground pad um, ground, ground pad i didn't even have a ground pad now and i was just you know if i if, if if somebody didn't invite me into their home i would i would just sleep on it i mean in russia i remember sleeping in the middle of this roundabout because it was a busy city <laughs> there was nowhere to stay i couldn't speak a <laughs> word of the language so i just found this roundabout in the center of <laughs> some really gray industrial areas like that'll do so I, and it was quite cold and so i had gone into this roundabout and i saw some to, uh, what do you call it tarpaulin like plastic sheeting i was like perfect this is going to keep me dry because it was about to rain Gone under this um tarpaulin and then i heard some rustling i thought oh shit there's some rats in there and i sort of looked underneath There was actually two other like homeless people sleeping under this <laughs> this blanket so i had to move on from there but um yeah, it was it was sort of experiences like that that I you know I look back and think what on earth was I doing? But at the time it was it felt like yeah it was it was a it was a big grand adventure.
0: So <laughs> so again, what did you eat?
1: Um, whatever I can get my hands on. I was usually I was you know one meal a day. I, I oh. tried to budget so I had you know three dollars or whatever per day to to spend on food. But in Iran, I remember I ran out of money um, in Iran, and um, the I mean literally I had. I I think I had $5 left and I knew I needed to pay for a a visa at the Afghan border. So not only was I had no money in Iran, but um, I was going into Afghanistan completely penniless. I had like one traveler's check, but you can't change any sort of Western traveler's checks in Iran because there was a big embargo on Mm. all that stuff. So I remember staying, I, I went to this... At uh, a small hotel in the middle of the desert, and explained to this. The Iranians are lovely people, mm-hmm. and they're they're very very hospitable, and everyone else had looked after me. But in this particular place, there was what no about system. the
0: Russians that let you sleep in the free? What? <laughs> 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 what about them? I, that restored my faith in Russians because I'm like the Russians didn't help you. Come on,
1: no, they did. <laughs> Honestly, I was I was like t- I mean it was it was tougher in Russia than, than a lot of places. Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, it was it was definitely a, 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 you know going across the border into Georgia was was great because there, there was a stark difference there.
0: So you, so you roll into to where in Iran? So where I'm in
1: a place called Mashhad, which is a big holy city on the, near the Afghan border, I have nowhere to stay. And I found this this one hotel, it's like a motel thing. And I explained to this guy, I said, look, can I have a room? I've got $5, but I really need $3 to get the Afghan stamp because it was that so much cost. And he said, look, you can stay for free on my office floor. And I said, have you got any food? He said, no, there's no food. But I noticed there was a, a wedding sort of party happening. He said, just go and help yourself to the leftovers. <laughs> So, Score. you know, there's always a way, there's always a way. But uh, yeah, I ended up in Afghanistan, um, literally no money. and But I knew, I'd been told that the Afghans were pretty hospitable mm-hmm. and, and they were. I managed to sort of hitchhike across the whole country uh, through Herat. I went through the central... Uh, mountains through Chagcharan, Bamian, and and ended up in Kabul. How are you I was overcoming finally able to tr- cash that traveler's check?
0: <laughs> How are you overcoming the language
1: barrier? Um, by hand signals, hand and signals. And I mean, smiles. I had a pretty good beard at that stage, so the places that I was traveling to were ethnically Tajik, and because I was, I'd got a pretty good tan and a beard, everyone thought I was a Pashtun. So they all they all sort of kept the distance because they thought I was a Taliban. <laughs> but as a result, they were quite, you know, they they, they kind of looked after me, and uh, yeah. It's fine.
0: And then where did that trip end?
1: Uh, that ended in India. So made it through Afghanistan, all the way through Pakistan, and then finally made it to the beach in Goa where I sort of shaved the beard off and finally had a beer and celebrated still being alive.
0: Oh, man. Once again, I'm, I'm over here. Look, I got four <laughs> kids. And my opinion is don't try this at home. Yeah. I'm glad you did it. I'm glad you're telling me about it.
1: I'm, I'm not encouraging people to necessarily do the same. <laughs>
0: no, actually, you wrote an entire book telling people to do this stuff. So I'm going to disagree with you there. It comes with it comes with a disclaimer. <laughs> All right. Um, speaking of the book, I'm going to go back to the book here for a second because at some point, um, well, before I jump into that, you you you. You get into Sandhurst. So, so, what's the deal with Sandhurst? Sandhurst is not like West Point, where you go there and you go to college for four years.
1: No, Sandhurst is twelve months, pretty much. Um, that's forty-four weeks spread over a year. You, it tends to be mainly graduates, so people who've finished university. Uh, but there is, you know, it, it is open to people who haven't necessarily been to university, um, and you spend twelve months there, and then you commission into whichever re- regiment or corps that you that you choose to join
0: and how hard is it to get into sandhurst
1: tough yeah very tough um i started my application process i think i was 17 when i went into the careers office with my dad um you then do the um what was then known as the regimental uh, sorry the um rcb um it, it, basically the selection into sandhurst so you have to go to a place called westbury where you do all these sort of command tasks lots of interviews um mental arithmetic, all this sort of stuff where you're tested for your aptitude and your personality. A lot of it's about leadership. It's showing not necessarily having experience in leadership, but the potential to Mm -hmm. develop your leadership. Is
0: there any other ways to get your commission besides going, like in America, Mm -hmm. you can go to West Point or the Naval Academy or whatever, or you can go to ROTC, which Mm -hmm. is you go to college while you're taking classes about whatever branch you're going into, or you can do officer candidate school. So there's... Or you can be a prior enlisted guy yep. and you can get commissioned. How does it work in England?
1: So all officers have to go to Sandhurst, even if you've done – I was in OTC whilst at university, so I did three years there.
0: Is it a different school for the Army versus the
1: Navy? Yes, so there's three. So Sandhurst is for the Army. Then you've got one um, down in Portsmouth for, for the Navy. And then you've got Cranwell, which is for the Royal Air Force. Hmm. Yeah.
0: But you're going to go – if you're going to get a commission, that's what you're doing.
1: I want, yeah, exactly. You've got to go to Sandhurst, and so for me, it was quite. Daunting. I'd heard about it. My my dad had encouraged me. He didn't get into Sandhurst. Um, he wanted to to join as a as a reservist back in the back in the seventies. Didn't work out for him. So I felt like I was. Um, and my grandfather was. You know, he was an enlisted private soldier. So there was no history of officership within my family. Or, although. I think there were five generations of soldiers previously. So we'd all served in one way or another. Um, So to go to Sandhurst was a real privilege, but also a big challenge because there was, it was quite a daunting prospect. You know, I was from a pretty normal background and then suddenly I was in the same platoon as Prince Harry. Um, So I was, you know, surrounded by a a totally different type of people that I hadn't necessarily met before. Um, Lots of people who'd been big in sports, who'd gone to very prestigious universities, universities. but I could say it's about leadership and, and demonstrating the potential to be an officer.
0: Now let's jump into the book. <clears throat> um, I passed the Army's commissioning board, which meant I could join as an officer and command men, something I found both exciting and daunting. A young officer's training takes place at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst. And when I arrived there, age 23, I still wasn't sure where I wanted to end up. After visiting as many units as they want to see where they might fit in, officer cadets can select two regiments to have interviews within their final term. So before you go to Sandhurst, Mm -hmm. you go and meet with various units to see which ones you like? Yeah. How freaking cool
1: is that? You do these sort of familiarization visits, and they can be as formal or informal as the regiment chooses. So... You know, a lot of the cavalry units, which are known to attract quite uh, posh, well-to-do officers, <laughs> they just go on a drinking binge for a weekend. <laughs> uh, other units, you know, the engineers or the artillery, do slightly more, um, you know, craft-focused mm-hmm. exercises. The paras, I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't look into the paras at this stage. So I, I'd gone to visit my local unit, the the Staffords. I'd looked at the Gurkhas. Uh, and I went to look at the intelligence corps. So you go, you basically go and have a look around, see if it's the right fit for you, and 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 it's a two way thing. They might not like you and say, mm-hmm. don't come back.
0: <laughs> so now you show up at Sandhurst. Back to the book. Sandhurst was hard work, and the late nights ironing my uniforms, the parades, and long academic essay academic essays were only part of it. There was a lot of running, marching, and being shouted at, along with field exercises, rifle ranges, and blowing things up, as well as learning the more subtle arts of our officership, fancy dinners, the intricacies of letter writing and knowing the DeBrett's Guide to Etiquette inside and out. It was an interesting and varied education. The DeBrett's Guide to Etiquette.
1: Yeah, I I didn't even know what this was until I went to Santa I don't West. know what it is right now. So it's basically a, a manual of how to behave like yeah. a proper gentleman. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Give us one example.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, I mean, the basics of you know, if you're going to a seven course meal, it's like, mm-hmm. which which knife and fork do you start with first? Yep. Um, it's how to write, you know, if you're writing a letter to a, a member of the royal family, how do you address them?
0: So at, when I, w- I went to officer candidate school and this is only 13 weeks long, so you, but you do get etiquette training. Mm-hmm. I believe the only thing I remember, this is a weird thing to remember, echo Charles, take notes, this yeah. could be important. Because it surprised me if you get a piece of food in your mouth that you didn't want in there the proper way to get it out of your mouth is to put it back on the fork and put it down <laughs> so in other words if you if you're eating a piece of chicken and there's a bone in there mm. you don't pull it out with your with yes. your hand yeah. you you put it back on the fork and you put it down now I think it's a lot more subtle So, you know, put the hand up by the face, grab that (laughs) thing, and, like, no one's ever going to know what I just did, as opposed to spitting the food back on the fork, right? That's kind of... Yeah. But, hey, that's the tradition.
1: They're they're the Mm. rules. (laughs) But that...
0: So, in regards to that, Mm
2: -hmm. uh, what if... So it has to be something like like a bone, like hey, I, I yeah, don't need a, b-
0: a piece of gristle. You're eating a gotcha. steak, and there's a piece of gristle that ain't going down. It's not, yeah, what are we gonna gotcha. do? Put the fork back next to your mouth. This is a legend. <laughs> Look, I'm not, yeah. I'm not even following this protocol mm. because I think that's a lot nastier. I'll clandestine move. You won't know what happened, (laughs) but that gristle's coming into my hand. It's going to be somewhere on the ground.
2: Makes sense. But (laughs) what if, and this might go outside of the scope of even what you're talking about? What if you eat some chicken that's like dry, or like well, you know, some new food like an escargot or something like this, and you're like, oh, first time.
1: Just don't like. I don't
2: (laughs) like this at all. Do you spit the whole escargot on the fork? or
0: mm. uh, we have to go.
2: We'll what have I, to I, we'll, consult we'll, the DeBretz
0: guy. We'll <laughs> That's a good DeBretz guide for, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I think you're in a tough spot. Yeah. I had that happen. I was, I don't like seafood and I was with, I was in Sierra Leone hmm. and I was, there was stuff going on down there and I was with my commanding officer and there was, like I said, there was things going on we were trying to figure things out. So we get invited and I was like his little sidekick guy I was a, Prior enlisted guy, but I was had been commissioned as an officer, and he was just really taking care of me and showing me the ropes. And so he gets invited to go see the Charge d'affaires, Affairs, which is the number two underneath the ambassador in a country. Unless there's no ambassador, in which case they're they're the, the the lead. And in this particular case, there was no ambassador, so this individual was the lead. So we roll up, and this is in Sierra Leone. There's a freaking war going on there, the Ekamog versus all that craziness is happening in Liberia. It's just it's just mayhem down in Africa. So we roll up to this like really nice house and every there's servants in the whole nine yards. And the first thing they put in front of me is some kind of crazy like just <laughs> like, Sashimi. Like, no, it's, it's like octopus, <laughs> shrimp and like raw fish all in one thing. Hell yeah. And I'm trying to do what I remembered from, you know, etiquette, which is you eat whatever you know, they're putting something in front of you. They yeah. they went the distance. And so I'm, I I was just I sucked it up, bro. I did it for the good of the mission, for the <laughs> good of the shoot job. <laughs> uh, all right. A little detour there. Back to the book. I also took up boxing. Everyone had to be part of a sports club at Sandhurst and I wasn't into rugby or rowing. Boxing seemed like a decent choice. Initially I hated the 4:30 a.m. starts, but as fitness started to as the fitness started to impact on me, and I felt myself improving. I came to relish the early morning alarm calls, plus there was the added carrot of the annual fight night in which the most dedicated, committed boxers were chosen to fight, watched by the whole academy, as well as a string of generals, politicians, and VIP guests. I was incredibly proud to be chosen as one of those fighters, and on 9 November 2005, I stood in the ring, surrounded by over 1,000 people face-to-face with officer candidate Mortimer. I won the fight by knocking my opponent to the ground, but I'm not retelling the story to discuss the win. I had a huge I had a huge respect for my opponent, and the opportunity that came next arose simply from having stood in the arena. After the fight, all the boxers were invited to the sergeant's mess, a club of sorts where many of our training instructors lived. This was a huge honor because it was, because this particular mess was usually out of bounds and the sergeants themselves were only seen in their context context as authoritarian figures, all muscles, tattoos, and shaved heads. The fact that we privileged few were allowed into their private domain was viewed with absolute envy by the other cadets. The sergeants crowded round the fighters and congratulated us all on our performance, victors and defeated alike. As I finished my second pint of beer, I found another one thrust into my hand. Looking up, I saw that it was Captain Truitt, the Sandhurst representative of the parachute regiment. Congratulations, Wood. Which regiment are you joining? He asked, he said sternly. I hesitated mom- momentarily before replying. I'm not sure, sir. I was looking at the Staffords or the Int Corp. Intel. Sod that, he said. You should join the Paras. My look of surprise must have been quite apparent. The Paras we're the most fearsome soldiers in the British Army. I'm not good enough to get in the paros, I thought. You needed to be a muscle-bound machine to get in. Surely it wasn't even on my radar. Sit down, the captain barked. I sat on one of the little stools by the bar, beer still in hand. First two rounds of interviews have already been done, he told me. We had over 100 applicants, and now we're down to 20. I don't do this very often, and I won't ask you twice, but do you want to interview? I sobered up pretty quickly. My entire future rested in the balance and all sorts of thoughts crossed my mind. What about the Staffords? They seem like a nice enough bunch. And the Intelligence Corp, they did some interesting spy related work. It could be a good start to my career, which would allow me to travel too. When it came to the paras, there were a lot of unknowns. As a regiment, they are shrouded in mystery and are considered to be one of the country's, if not the world's most elite military units. I didn't know what to expect and I didn't think I was capable of joining their ranks. The temptation was to play it safe and stick with a more achievable goal. I knew what I was getting into with the Staffords. If I agreed to an interview with the paras, I would automatically have to turn down one of the other options since you can only interview with two regiments and the paras had the toughest selection of all, just peaking the intelligence Corps. If I turned down the Staffords and failed the board for the others, I ran the risk of not getting any of my choices. I could end up being a blanket stacker in the logistics corps for the rest of my career. The captain was staring at me. I'd like to interview, sir, I told him, expecting that it would take place in the coming weeks. Nope. Captain Truitt launched into a formal interview right there at the bar, grilling me about my own motivations, experiences, education, and skills. Another 15. After another 15 minutes, he stood up, shook my hand, and told me to report to his office at 6 a.m. the next morning. And that's what I did, hangover and all. I was fast-tracked to the final eight, and then at the last interview with a panel headed by some of the most senior figures in the British Army, I was offered a place in the parachute regiment. That's how I got into the paras. Freaking epic story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's, in hindsight, it's those little moments, isn't it, that can change your entire, the course of your life. And it was that drunken moment in a bar that you know boxing is what got me in and that's probably if i hadn't have joined the paras there's no way i would have been able to do half the stuff i've done since then let alone have the confidence to go and spend uh you know 10 years exploring the world so i'm glad i took it up and i'm glad i took the risk
0: and you made that decision in a split. You, you literally hadn't thought about the Paras
1: at all I hadn't that. even been on my radar
0: and you thought maybe you weren't quite capable of doing it. Is that what kept it off your radar? I think
1: until that point, you know, I mentioned there the Staffordshire Regiment, which was my local regiment, and the Intelligence Corps, which was was very difficult to get into, more from an intellectual capability. So I felt that in having the the Inc. Corps, that was going to, you know, that was quite a big risk. The Staffords was slightly more guaranteed in, in many respects. So the paras... You know, like I say, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the sort of biggest muscle bound guy in the world, and and looking around at some of the other guys that had been in the Paris, there, there's quite a, uh, there's a, quite an aggressive mentality to get in there, and, and like I said, there was a hundred applicants for only six places in the end, um, so no, it hadn't been on my radar, but. I think the boxing, which had encouraged me to just have a bit more confidence, it is what did it for me. Mm-hmm. So uh, that and, and, and then the, the probably the drinks I'd had for the <laughs> in the bar at the time. <laughs> if you'd
0: have said no, he'd have handed you another shot. Probably he got you to say yes. <laughs> Do you keep in touch with this guy? Yeah, I mean, this guy freaking changed your life. He
1: did. Yeah, he actually he, he sent me a message on LinkedIn the other day, which was quite a coincidence because I'd not heard from him for uh, for quite a number of years. And I mentioned that he was going to go in my book, and he said, "Why?" I said, "Well." actually so you uh it was it was you that i can thank for all of all of what's happened
0: and then what about the guy that found
1: your wallet nicest guy ever i've tried to track him down i can't find him anywhere. <laughs> one day I'll, I'll i'll send him a nice letter back
0: yeah it's just a good reminder to people to everybody you know you have the opportunity to like completely change people's lives and and just by doing something cool and nice and it's mm-hmm. freaking those those guys I mean, first of all, giving you your wallet back and your money—that's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, but then, just giving you all a six-page essay on how to move forward, and mm. and and you know what's? Look, not everyone's going to take you up on your advice, right? Of and you give people advice all the time, and you might get sick of doing it, and you think, well, it's not worth it. But you change one person's life, and you're a perfect example of that. Of of your world changing because these momentary decisions mm. and momentary mentorship from people, it's it's unbelievable, it's awesome. Um, Let's get to the paras a little bit. Going back to the book. To join the parachute regiment, candidates must undergo a tough selection process called Pre-Parachute Selection, run by Pegasus Company, which is usually referred to as Pico. P Company, Yep. Based at the Infantry Training Center in Catterick, North Yorkshire. After 21 weeks of training, candidates are put through eight tests to, designed to test their resilience and determination, including a 20-mile endurance march laden with a 16-kilogram pack and a rifle in under four hours and 10 minutes an intimidating assault course, which is what you guys call obstacle courses. And maybe we do call them assault courses too. Let's go with assault. Sounds way cooler. <laughs> 17 meters above the ground, called the Trainasium. Is that yeah, right? yeah. And 60 seconds of milling. Milling, arguably the flagship event of parachute selection, is a boxing match between candidates of similar size and strength in which determination and aggression are awarded and dodging and blocking lose points. In short, it amounts to being punched hard in the head for a minute straight while trying to hit the other guy as much and as hard as possible. If either combatant sheds blood or is knocked to the floor, the clock is paused, blood wiped off, and the bout resumes. It is forbidden to aim at any part of the opponent's body besides the head, and the winner is the most aggressive candidate. Milling is designed specifically to replicate Quote, the conditions of stress and personal qualities required in a combat situation and test quote, determination and raw fighting spirit of the candidates. It is this raw spirit of controlled aggression that sets paras apart from the rest of the army. Good times. Yeah. I had to go to YouTube on that one. I just watch some <laughs> milling. It's pretty that's cool, freaking isn't it? Legit. <laughs> it's freaking legit. Yeah. Just go as hard as you can it's for 60 pure, seconds. It's
1: pure, unadulterated aggression, punching straight to the head. You can't back off. You can't turn away. If you turn away, <laughs> that's you. You've, you've, you've screwed your entire career. It's all based on that one moment, especially as an officer. If you show any... Weakness, if you if you cower away, you, will, you won't get in the, the regiment. So you could have spent months doing all the other training. You could have passed all the interviews, done the tests. I know guys that had spent six months who were perfectly capable of doing everything else, and then they were just a bit weak on the milling. That was them, done. Do they actually fail? Yeah. And you're not in it? And then you're not in. Then you'll get sent somewhere else.
0: Did you have to, like, rearrange your brain from your boxing training to not you know parry yeah. and slip It's very and different yeah yeah cuz i would think your instinct would be you'd be slipping you know and moving and head yeah. movement and everything that you learn learned to be a good boxer of course. you have to throw it out the window <laughs> and
1: there's no training for milling the, the, the only event that you do you don't practice this at all the first time most of the blokes actually mill is is on their test so you you know you're given your gloves and you're exp- you're told the rules and you just Go in. I mean, it's a great spectator sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is definitely, this should be on pay-per-view for sure.
0: It's all, it's everything like that the UFC wants, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just punch each other as much as you possibly freaking can. Yeah. How often do guys get knocked down?
1: A lot. Yeah, like it's every other one. There's, there's guys going down. I mean, it's it's pretty full on. I mean, and especially as the officers, because you're in with the the enlisted guys mm-hmm. as well. So there's probably, let's say, ninety enlisted guys and like I say, six officers. And they always with the officers I, I mentioned in there that you're usually put up against a person of your own size and weight. Officers, that's not true. They put you up against the biggest guys out there. <laughs> so I was up against this, this huge guy and it's all you take your tops off, it's all done sort of, you know, so you can really get the full the full experience. And um I was up against this huge guy, and I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> Probably because I'd, I'd already had my boxing match, you know, at Sandhurst, and which I'd won, so I was quite proud of my mm. sort of undefeated one-one win. <laughs> um, and then to go milling where you're surrounded by not only your future brother officers, but also you know dozens of men that you will go on to command. They're all watching you; all their eyes are on you. So you, you know, you've got to put on a bit of a an act, a brave face, of course, but you don't want to lose. And thankfully, I did win. And it was only afterwards—I mean, I, I was—I got a lucky punch in and knocked the guy out. But it was only—it was only afterwards that he came up to me. He was much taller than me, much bigger than me, and he was like, "Good fight." So he said, "I'll, I'll be honest, I was—I was terrified." I was like, Are you serious? Like, I'm literally half your size." Oh, he said,
0: "You were the Sanders but champion." He said,
1: well, no, he just said, "You're—you're you're a parachute regiments officer." I was never going to win against that. And I think that it's the it's mindset isn't it it's mentality and so he was bizarrely it was nothing to do with physical presence it was it was far more ag- against you know it's just the, what's going on in your mind and mm-hmm. for him it was to be up against an officer was was um was a big thing damn they play that game in the <laughs> seals <laughs>
0: you give the young e-dogs a shot at the title against an officer that officer better hang on because he's gonna bring it <laughs> the other cool thing is uh, i was watching the videos it's like uh Basically, the ring is formed from the crowd. Yeah. And it's small. Yeah. What is it? It's probably, it looks like well, it's you're like not eight moving. feet by you eight don't, feet.
1: You, you don't move your feet. You're just static and punch. Good times.
0: How much did you wear? At that
1: time? Um, I was probably 80, 75 kilo, 80 kilograms. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: What, are you challenging him? <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, g- going back to the book, nothing worth having comes easy. And we will need to work hard to achieve things that we want most out of life. Whether this is learning a new skill or advancement in our professional careers, we need to be prepared to stay the course and keep working toward our goals no matter which obstacles appear along the way. When I was on my way into the parachute regiment, I bust up to Catterick for my pre-parachute selection. At that point, I had no idea what the next 20 or so weeks would look like for me. All I knew was that they would be the most stressful, demanding, challenging of my life so far. But I had a goal in mind. I was determined to earn that purple beret at the end, the recognition of my achievement and my initiation into one of the world's elite fighting regiments. That level of drive is absolutely crucial. We can't give our all to anything if we're not motivated by the end result. And if we're not giving our all, we've no chance of sticking things through when the going gets tough. Over the first few weeks of selection, it was pretty clear that a lot of people didn't have what it took. Some couldn't handle the rigors of training and fell behind. Others decided that enough was enough and dropped out of their own accord midway through. I had my own moment when I thought my time on selection was up. I came down with a shin injury that sent me back behind the rest of my cohort for a few days, unable to join in the rigorous drills and knowing that when I was back in action, things would be exponentially tougher for the time I'd missed. I'd wondered, I wondered if this was worth it. I started thinking about what my life would be like if I failed selection. Probably not all that bad. I could probably go and reapply to one of the Army's other more sedate regiments, then what? Have a fairly average military career, perhaps go on some, go to some interesting places and do some interesting things, but nothing grabbed me about it. Even more so when I considered a life and career outside the Army, having just passed out of Sandhurst, I couldn't for a moment contemplate the prospect of a civilian life. All I wanted was that maroon beret. It kept appearing in front of me every time I closed my eyes. In a way, it would have taken some motivation to present myself to one of the officers running selection and tell them that I wanted to drop out, that I couldn't do it. But I had no desire to do anything besides recover, get back to training, and persevere through the rest of selection, so that's what I did. I pushed myself harder than I'd previously thought possible, quickly making up the ground I'd lost on the rest of the cadets. I remember my fear of heights being pushed to the background when I tackled the Transanium. My 60 seconds of milling passed in such a blur, I can't remember them all. Besides an overwhelming need not to hurt the person I was paired with, but to prove to him and everyone looking on that I wasn't one for backing down whatever the circumstances. Perhaps I'm fortunate that I was born with this amount of grit and determination. It's not always a positive. I've been told many times that I'm as stubborn as a mule but up there in the cold, wet, windy cataract, these inner reserves of drive, vision, grit, and resilience pulled me through and I got the beret I've been dreaming about. It's hard to think how different my life would have been without it. One of the reasons I I, I wanted to read that little section was there's a point where you're, you're doing a little bit of rationalization. Like, oh, you know, if I don't make it you know, like, well, it we'll might not be that bad, you know, and I don't have to put up with this. And I I hear people rationalize and stuff all day long. As a matter of fact, there's a TV show, Echo Charles. Mm. It's called Lost, and they basically take these people out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. and you're by yourself. I think it's called Lost. No, it's called Alone. Sorry. It's called Alone. And they, they go out and they put these people. And my little daughter, who's 10 at the time, she got really into it and we would watch it. And so you can quit at any time. You can key up your radio mm-hmm. and send out a transponder and they come and get you. But you'd be listening to the people and you'd hear them start to rationalize, mm-hmm. you know? And so I taught my daughter. I said, you know what they're doing right? They should be like, oh, he's rationalizing. <laughs> you know? uh, Cause you know, the guy says, no, it's a, you know, I the, you know I like being out here and I love the nature, but you know I really miss my family and mm-hmm. I, I realize that my family's more and I I look at my little daughter and go, what's he doing right now? Rationalizing. <laughs> He's about to quit. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the fact that you started going a little bit down that path of rationalization and yeah. then you said, you know what? No, doesn't
1: yeah. work. I think you know we're we're all sort of prone to it just to to varying degrees and and when 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 things get really tough, you know those little elements of doubt do have a tendency to creep in and you just have to fight them you have to sort of try and look at your situation objectively and realize what you're doing and and that rationalization thankfully is, is is uh is outrightly sort of castigated in the parachute regiment and you're reminded stop rationalizing and and the instructors it might sound like they're shouting at you but what they're doing is just reminding you not to give up so thankfully, it's, it's stamped out pretty quickly. But a lot of it is on your own shoulders. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants you to quit. You know, the, 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 the unit needs officers. It needs soldiers. They don't want people to leave. They're not telling you to quit. They're telling you to, to not quit. But so it's down to you.
0: And people do this with every freaking thing in everyday yep. life all day long. Like yep. that last rep or that donut that you're like, you know, I did work out hard yesterday. <laughs> I did work out hard. And it's, actually, it's really good to reward yourself. Right, it's good to reward yourself. (laughs) It's good to have a positive feedback loop. And I did work out hard yesterday, and yeah, I want to be. I don't want to be in a grind all the time. You got to enjoy life, right? Discipline equals freedom. How about the freedom part? Here's the freedom part. Let me me get that donut. You can rationalize anything. (laughs) You can literally rationalize anything. If you're if you're not freaking careful, you will rationalize stuff that's not good for you. So. You, you, you get done with this train. Is milling like the last final thing? Is
1: um, it close to the end? It's close to the end, I think, but the most important um, event of all is something called the log race. And basically the, there's a big telegraph pole. I can't remember how much it weighs, but it's bloody heavy. <laughs> and there's like eight, eight people on each log and usually one or two officers on each log. And it's a race. So you've got four logs, or however many.
0: How many days does it take? Uh,
1: no, no, it's just it's, it's one event um, on. I think it's the, the second to last day, or the or the final day, and it's basically you are you're sent off. It's it's about I think it's three miles or something like that, um, and it's a race between the, the different groups. But you've got to stay on the log. If you come off the log as an officer. That will stay with you for the rest of your career. I know generals that that who, who you know in the seventies are still reminded by their fellow officers that they came off the log in nineteen seventy five. <laughs> it happens, so you you're all made aware of this. So you you and A couple of officers did come off the log. I stayed on it. Um, there was only two people left on the log, and this thing is bloody heavy there's
0: only two people left yeah
1: and so you're pretty much dragging this this log uphills so when you say off, off the road, road, log
0: what do you mean like you as in you stop? fall off
1: and people people just fall off it and, and they just pass out <laughs> I mean it's 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 really heavy you start with eight you've got to do two you know like say two and a half or three miles on an off-road course it's, it's up these you know through, through rivers and all this sort of stuff and uh Usually by the end of it, there's only like top couple of people left.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. But the other people still graduate.
1: Uh, They do, but if you fail two events on P Company out of the twenty or so events, then you're off the course. So when I was, because I was later an instructor on P Company, usually with the soldiers, at least with the recruits, there's only about a ten or eleven percent pass rate. So we'd start off with a platoon of ninety or hundred recruits, and we'd pass out ten or fifteen. So that's that's how tough it is damn yeah and how long is the whole
0: training 21 weeks
1: uh yeah yeah
0: so if we're on a log and we're going and i i've passed every event but the, i you know don't carry the log i go to the side or whatever yeah i can still be a para
1: only if you don't come off one of the other events so if you fail let's say the assault course of the train which is the aerial assault course where you've got to sort of jump across the high nets and things like that, then you'll be off the course. So you can, you can get all the way to the end of the, the, you know, the, the course. And if you come off, if you fail two of these events, that's you off, then you'll get sent to another regiment.
0: Is there a time limit on the log? Because um, I mean, imagine if there's only two of you left, like it's going to take some time. It, takes, it <laughs>
1: takes a while, yeah. It's staying on is most important and not just giving up.
0: In the SEAL training, you carry a log. You spend a lot of time with a log, mm. but you also spend a lot of time with a boat like these little boats that that used to be made out of rubberized canvas, so they were really heavy. They're a lot lighter now than they were. (laughs) (laughs) But what's interesting, so when I went through, you know, you're carrying the boat on your head a lot. Mm -hmm. And this is sort of what I thought you were saying. You carry the boat on your head a lot. And, you know, if we're all in a boat crew, and there's eight of us in the boat crew, it's possible to sort of, like, shrink your head down a little bit and release your posture a little bit and not have your head carrying any weight, which means that everyone else is carrying the weight. So when I went through, it was like a sort of, um, like it was happening and you'd see someone doing it and be like, you'd hear people yelling like in another boat, go get your freaking hand under the boat, man. Well, they didn't have this, but they have it now. They have, you can actually, you get written up for what they call duck boat. So they'd be like, Charles, you're ducking boat and you can get a, like a demerit. Yeah, mm. They didn't actually call it, they didn't have a name for it when yeah. I went through, but now they have a freaking name for it because it's like a, it, it's like you're coming off your log, bro. Yeah. Like you're not with the team <laughs> and that's not cool.
1: Well, we have the same thing. I mean, because we have, there's a stretcher race, so the same sort of thing where you carry carrying a stretcher for five miles, that one. Um, so you can get through to the, as, certainly as an officer, it's more apparent, but if you can get through to the whole course, even if you stayed on all of the events, you can get what's called a stand-up fail. Which is basically you're still standing up, but you failed on your attitude or personality, mm-hmm. so you can still get booted off if they don't like you. Yeah, that, that's as it should be, <laughs> yeah. right?
0: Because there's yeah. some there's some non quantifiable leadership qualities 100%. that some people have or don't have, and if yeah. if you got someone that's looking out for themselves and just yeah. you know trying to step on everyone's back to get to the top, we don't want that guy on the team. Yeah. So you get done with that, and now you show up. You show up at the regiment.
1: More or less, you've still got to do um, the infantry battle school. So there's three months in Brecon in Wales where you then go and do, um, no apologies, that was first, P Company, and then, yeah, that was to the unit, yeah. So I joined the unit in 2006, just as they my three-power were getting back from Afghanistan on the first tour. So it was a pretty, that was a pretty punchy tour as well.
0: And so you're just so new meat
1: at this point. New meat straight in charge of 30 more veterans and that was quite a daunting challenge, yeah. What
0: was your what was your what lessons did you learn from that?
1: Um well I'll never forget the day I was I took over my platoon I met the guys and you know you sort of at sandhurst that you're going to have this sort of general montgomery moment where you're sort of you know standing on a land rover sort of addressing your soldiers as they're all on parade it doesn't really work like that i sort of walked into the barracks and they're all in bed <laughs> i was like uh could i speak to the guys so they, they all came together and there was a corporal corporal crabtree chris crabtree big guy <laughs> and um he said sir can i uh, tell you a joke he said yeah go on then he said how many um sangin veterans does it take to l- change a light bulb I was like, I don't know. He says, of course you don't know, sir, because you weren't fucking there. I was like, thanks. (laughs)
0: Welcome aboard.
1: welcome aboard. But it was, no, it was was daunting. But, you know, I felt prepared. You know, Sandhurst, the the Infantry Battle School, P Company, it prepares you. It gives you that confidence, you know. uh, Milling, boxing, all that stuff. So whilst it was, like, quite something... I'd already, I'd hitchhiked through Afghanistan, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of years before. So I think when, when some of the guys started learning some of my stories, they had a slightly more respect for me than they probably could have had. Um, but it was still a big challenge. You know, you've got to prove to your men, they're not going to, they don't, they're not just going to follow you until they know you're not, a, you know, not a dick, basically. Yeah.
0: How long is it your, um, what, what's the training like now? The guys come home, I'm sure they stand down for a little while, yeah. and then it's, hey, we got to get ready to go back.
1: So the, I think the turnaround was about fourteen months before the next deployment. So there was a little bit of downtime. There was there was plenty of opportunity for the guys to get some rest and do things like adventure training. Um, and I mean, there's there's a story in the book um, where, as a junior officer, the commanding officer said, "Look, is this, the this is, is the kayak. What is a kayak on, yeah. polo? <laughs> go ahead, go, go ahead, tell us." So basically, the CO said, "Look, all the all the new officers. So the six guys that we'd all just come out straight out of Sanders, you guys." pick a sport each, and, um, and then get all the guys to go and do something fun. So I said, okay, well, I was looking at sports. And all my colleagues uh, had pretty much chosen what they were, their, their sort of chosen sports were. So somebody did soccer, uh, football. Um, somebody else did, uh, you know, ran the rugby team. My only sport, of course, at that time was boxing. But Three para already had a very well-established boxing team, so there's no way I could go and join that. So I was sort of scrambling around and thought, okay, well, I'll just do kayaking. Um, It sounds like fun. You know, I'd done a bit when I was a kid, so I'll do that. So I I went and sort of, you know, asked for volunteers. I got six or seven very unwilling volunteers from the soldiers because they'd rather be on leave, but they'd all been told they had to join one of these clubs as well. Now, that's when things started getting competitive because the paras being the paras, the commanding officer sort of then threw into the ring. He said, look... You've all got to apply for, whichever sport it is, apply for a competition, and you've got to win it because you're Paris. So, <laughs> so thought, you were just thinking, we oh, I'll put together
0: a, a kayak It was club, meant to be fun. And we'll go out in the river, and we'll have some fun. And exactly. It'll be all good. You can probably travel. Yeah. you're always trying to find some scam to travel. Exactly. Yeah. But, but then he says, hey, I want competition.
1: So, and, and I was based in a place called Colchester in Essex. Now, there's no, there's no sort of... Uh, particular venue to go and learn kayaking in Colchester apart from the local canal system now this was winter so I basically managed to get hold of a bunch of these boats and we were out paddling in the frozen you know dirty waters of, of, of Essex canals now there's like shopping trolleys floating around in the water there was like you know the homeless guys sort of taking a leak off the bridge as we were going under it I mean it was that kind of it was pretty grim and so the guys were not particularly inspired by this by this whole project and and I was trying to find a, a suitable competition to enter. And that the main kayaking competition in the UK is um, is basically a race. It's a hundred mile race uh, along the Thames um, from a place called Henley to to Westminster. It's called the Divisors to Westminster race. But that wasn't until May, which was we were meant to be back in the training cycle by then. So the only th- other thing I could think of or find was over the Easter weekend, which was the Army uh, Canoe Polo Championships, which was in a swimming pool. A pool in a town called Aldershot, which is the, the home of the Parrots, and so I applied for this um, this competition. They were like, "Yeah, we don't normally get Paras applying but fine, turn up." So after we you know we'd done like several weeks of training, the guys were just about competent in staying in the boats without falling out, but no, you know, by all means, n- none of them could do a proper Eskimo role at this stage. So we turned up on on Easter weekend, and the, the guys were all really annoyed because it was Easter weekend; they wanted to be at home with their families. And we found the, the swimming pool attendant, the guy who's running the, the competition. He said, Oh, you didn't expect you to turn up. And um, we got in our boats. He said, Right, get in the pool. And we like, Where's all the other teams? There was supposed to be like six other teams entering. He said, Well, it's Easter. Obviously, nobody's bothered. You're the only people here. So we he said, Well, what does that mean? He said, Well, you've got the gold medal. <laughs> <laughs> so out of all the teams that, uh, in the paras to do all these sports, we were the only ones to actually win our competition. Um, obviously, we didn't need to tell anyone that nobody else had turned up and <laughs> we'd won by default, but it goes to show, you know, if you if you uh, you've got to be in it to win it, so to speak.
0: Now, you guys are going. Do you know that you're preparing to go to Afghanistan?
1: Yeah, we knew we knew that. So in uh, the deployment was in the spring of 2008. Um, Especially off the back of the first tour that they'd been involved with, the powers of the first of the whole British Army to to go into southern Afghanistan into Helmand, and it was like I said, it was a um, it was a very kinetic tour. There was um, there was a lot of stories coming out of it, so there was there was a lot of things to live up to. So yeah so we deployed to to helmand and um kandahar and um we, we were on uh something called the regional command group south so we were basically the rapid response unit to go and fly in in helicopters to wherever they needed us um, and it was a pretty varied role it was it was interesting because we weren't in one of the forward operating bases like two para who mm-hmm. were stuck in 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 one of these fobs for the whole six months we were bouncing around all over the place Which meant that we would, you know, one day we'd be doing a raid on a Taliban commander. Another day we'd be helping the local police build a police station. Another time we'd be going out clearing the opium. You know, so it was it was a really interesting, varied role. But it did mean that we all had to get our heads into this, you know, three hundred and sixty degree battle space, hybrid warfare. No two days were the same. And so it was it was quite a complicated environment in which to operate.
0: Well, who did you turn over with? Did you get a turnover from somebody when you showed up there?
1: Yeah, we did. Um, I think it was the Royal Marines who were in there before us. Um, but the, the the role itself of of RC South was pretty undefined. So it was pretty much whatever the brigade commander said we'd go and do. So it might be the first job that we did was in a place called Maywand, and we had to go and um, clear this 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 town of of any any Taliban Taliban elements. I'd read about Maywand from my my days doing history, and um, this was a place that the British Army had, had been in. In 1842, and it turns out we were stationed in the same fort as the British Army 150 years previously. So that was pretty, you know, interesting from from somebody who'd studied the region.
0: You go into some of your um, <clears throat> some of the operations in here, and some of the leadership really lessons that you learned which are great lessons i'm going to the book here once on operations in Zabul province in southern afghanistan my platoon was given the mission to search a village for a known terrorist recruiter for the most part this involved being invited by friendly women for tea scanning their kitchens and gardens with metal detectors and then being cursed and told the house belonged to an absent uncle as we dug up room and removed caches of weapon. After walking around all day, we were low on water and needed to get back to the helicopter pickup point, which was five miles away across the desert. As we were leaving the village, I noticed a group of men huddled, under, huddled around under the shade of a mulberry tree. They looked shifty and stared at us as we walked past. One of them wore a white turban and had coal around his eyes looking like a Taliban leader. I got the translator to say hello and ask their names, which he duly noted. I reported the names by radio to our intelligence cell, and they said they were all clear. So we left the men and trekked back across the desert to where my boss was waiting. By now, the whole platoon was exhausted and thirsty. We had not had time to eat all day, and the temperature was over 50 degrees Celsius, which is like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. One of the soldiers was beginning to wobble, and I I expected it might be heat exhaustion. Then, to make matters worse, my boss came over. Lev, you know that group of men in the village? Yes, well, the one in the white turban? The incel now says they want him in for questioning. What the hell, I reported his name on the radio and they said he was clear. I know, they screwed up. So what now? Well, we've got two hours before your helicopter comes, go and get him. I shook my head, I had two hours and it was 10 miles, a 16 kilometer round trip. In the paras, we have a well-known physical stamina test known as the 10-miler, which is a punishing speed march while carrying kit. They can be hard work at home in the rain, but out here in the desert, low on water, I knew it might be deadly. I looked at my men and could tell that half of them weren't up to it. They were exhausted, but orders were orders. I figured that I could do the job with 10 or 12 men so half of the men could stay behind. I knew that in order to do so, I had to get them to buy into the vision and feel ownership. So instead of barking out an order, I gathered my section commanders around. I told them the situation and asked them what they thought were the best options. A lesson I learned early on is that even if you already know the answer, ask the question. It makes people feel valued and part of the team and decision making process. It doesn't matter who gets the credit for the decision and when you take your own ego out of the equation it's amazing what happens sir i have an idea said the youngest corporal why don't we leave half the men behind and take some of their water i'm sure we can do the job with 10 or 12 men men that's a great idea i said patting him on the back he grinned from ear to ear and i made him the point man i need 12 volunteers to come with me i said the rest of you can stay here the men looked at each other they knew it would be one of the hardest tabs of their life and that it would be dangerous because the Taliban now knew our strength and would have time to prepare an attack as they saw us walking back across the desert. Private Foster, one of the new soldiers, put his hand up. I'll come, sir. I need the exercise, he joked. Sylvester was next, then another and another. Because we had a strong team, bonded with trust, I had no shortage of volunteers. Even some of the men who I knew stood no chance of making it started to put their hands up because they felt ashamed, but I already had enough. We redistributed the water, gritted our teeth, and marched back across the desert to the village where we found the man in the white turban, arrested him, and marched all the way back again, being chased by an angry mob of Afghans. It was a hard slog, but one of the most determined team efforts I'd seen in my career. To top it off, we later found out that the man in the white turban was at the top of the regional most wanted list. That victory and a shared hardship cemented the bonds of the platoon even stronger. There was nothing that my men didn't think they could accomplish. Legit. I get it. Um, often I'll get asked, you know, how can I get my team to buy into the plan? And I always say, let them come up with a plan.
1: <laughs> Simple isn't it.
0: <laughs> let them come up with a plan. That's what you do. Um, and that's something, you know, you say you learned it. Where, where do you think you picked that up? Was it something that you saw the instructors doing at Sandhurst? Is it what your sergeant, the way your sergeants ran thing? Ran things?
1: I'll give you the honest answer. I was actually I watched there's a series called Shop. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was about um I don't think so. It was, uh it was it was basically, basically about the um the war um the Peninsular War in okay. in the 19th century. Um but it's it, yeah, it had Sean Bean in it. It was basically a military drama series and um it's often referred to in military circles because it's it's um, it's a it was a fun war in the sense that it was it was in a. What's the name of this program? It's called Sharp. Yeah, Richard Sharp. As in S H A R P. P E. Yeah. Sharp. sharp. So in
0: America, we'd say sharp. What you're saying to yeah. me right now sounds like shop, but it's all good. I'm shop. married to a Brit. I kind of understood it. <laughs>
1: so, so shop is a military officer. He's a, he's a commander in, in um, the rifles and, and basically um, often cited as, as a sort of uh, figurehead in, in, in leadership. But I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, ah, oh, he does exactly the same. When did the series come out? Uh, oh, it was back in the nineties. Yes, it's an old series. But I grew up watching Sharp. So I think that was probably where I first saw that that style of leadership. Mm-hmm. But again, of course, it was drilled into us at Sandhurst and in training to to you know, bring your team into the plan. Yeah. You know, if you if you've got a vision, that's great, but you've got to get people to buy into it. And I think empowering people, letting them take ownership of those ideas is is the best way of doing that.
0: Yeah, I to- totally agree. Um yeah, and a lot of times, even if you think you have the answer and you ask the team what they think, they're gonna come up with a better answer than you had in the first place. Exactly. So it's like, why not just ask them?
1: Yeah, and I think ego is often the downfall of a lot of leaders in in some ways because it's when you when you sort of, uh, when you think that, oh, because I'm the leader, I have to have the answer, that's when things go wrong, especially in the military context.
0: Yeah, 100%, 100%, that's a, that's a killer. Um, leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield also pays to be lucky sometimes. Another little section, back to the book. (laughs) One day we were setting up a temporary encampment on the outskirts of a lush valley. I got the call from my commanding officer that a vehicle had been blown up a couple miles away and I was to take my platoon out on a rescue mission. Our armored cars had special tracks so they could go over any kind of terrain. We drove them across the desert and up to the top of an escarpment where the location of the explosion had been reported. As we got closer, I looked through the front windscreen and could see the remains of a Land Rover blown to smithereens. I was expecting the worst, as there should have been four soldiers inside. I called the team medic and told him to get ready to treat any surviving casualties. We stopped short by 50 meters in case there were any other bombs nearby, and when I got out of my vehicle, to my absolute surprise and joy, I saw that all the men were fine. When the landmine had exploded, it had sent a shockwave through the car, sending everyone in it flying out onto the ground. They were all alive and seemingly unharmed. I asked them if they were okay, and apart from being dizzy and shaken, they nodded and walked over to where I was standing. There was space in one of our three vehicles, so I put the men in the back of the car at the front, telling the lead vehicle that we should reverse back out of the danger area because we might be in a minefield. seemed like a sensible option so that's what we did making sure that we stayed exactly in our own tracks until we were well clear of the flat plateau at that point my three vehicles needed to turn around so that we didn't get stuck in a bottleneck between two large cliffs so the front vehicle did a three-point turn and pushed around the other two so that it was now facing forward again in the lead we all did the same and drove off down a track back towards the encampment, and by now, I was in vehicle number two, where the commander should always be. Then, just as we left the scraggy boulder field, there was an enormous explosion, and I felt the shock waves hit my own car. After a second of deafness and ringing in my ears, I looked through my windscreen to see a massive cloud of dust. As it cleared, I realized what had happened. The point vehicle had driven over another mine, and to make matters worse, it was the same four soldiers who had been in the first explosion. I shouted down the radio telling everyone to stop exactly where they were were, whilst I considered the situation. I could see bodies lying in the dirt next to the car which had the front end ripped off of it. Now I knew I had to show some real leadership and there was only one thing for it. The metal detectors were in the car at the back and it would take them a good 10 minutes to clear the path between the cars, let alone get to the front where we might have heavy casualties. I got out of the car, pulled out my bayonet and began to crawl forward, stabbing the sand in front of me to check for mines. Luckily the car in front wasn't too far and I was able to cover the distance quickly. I reached the car and to my relief found that yet again, by some miracle, everyone was alive. And what's more, uninjured. One of the soldiers stood up, dusted himself off, and looked at me stabbing around in the dirt. What are you doing, sir? He laughed. You won't find any Taliban down there. It was a lucky day, made even luckier as I was filling out the daily report back at camp when I found out that my team and the remaining vehicle had been tasked with denying the half-blown-up cars. That meant going back to the site and blowing them up properly with explosives so the Taliban couldn't make use of them in the future. It was a simple task and I was told that I should remain behind with the other platoon commanders so that we could receive our orders for the next day. As the team were driving back, they too hit a landmine and the empty commander's seat where I normally would have been sitting was completely destroyed by the explosion. You can't be a leader unless you're willing to put your team ahead of yourself when circumstances call for it. This requires moral courage and integrity, the building blocks not only of great leadership but of a fulfilled, purposeful life. Just out there digging for mines.
1: (laughs) It was a lucky day, a very lucky day.
0: And no one got in your seat? No one got in your vehicle commander's seat?
1: Yeah. God. That was uh yeah. I look back now and thank my lucky stars that um yeah, that was a very lucky day.
0: What was the op tempo? So like how often were you guys running out going out on missions?
1: Well, because of the nature of the job, we were, like I said, doing different things. So we'd we'd go out and clear a valley one day. We might be out for a week, then we'd come back to Kandahar. We were based um, in Kandahar Air Base alongside the Canadians for the most part. Um, most of the Brits were either in Bastion or in, um, you know, one of the FOBs. So it was quite, I mean, Kandahar Air Base, you know, it had a timmy horton's coffee it had a pizza hut it had a burger king i mean yeah. it was a bizarre sort it's of experience crazy. so you're you're out there getting blown at one minute and then you're in you're in with the with the remps as we always, we like to call them <laughs> another and it's such a bizarre thing to get your head around um but we weren't in there for long we'd stay for a few days we'd regroup we'd, we'd clean ourselves up and then we'd get back out there and we did some really fascinating you know operations we did uh, according to um the news report, at least, we did one of the biggest airborne assaults of the entire of the entire war. We we flew um, to into Zabul with um, I can't remember how many Chinooks. It was like ten Chinooks with Apache support to do uh, a full battalion level assault and um, stuff like that. When you've got um, when you've got Rider of the Valkyries blaring out of the speakers, it, it, it sort of it was pretty, um, you know, it was pretty <laughs> energizing to, to say the least. Um, equally, you know, we'd be out there helping rebuild a school or paint a paint a police station the next. So it was it was quite it, it was uh, it was challenging in, uh, on different levels. It wasn't that we were getting in as many fights because actually the guys in the fobs were getting attacked every day. They were getting mortared every day. Um, we'd often go for a, for a week without firing a shot in anger so it, it wasn't necessarily the 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 intensity of the fighting certainly for my tour it was more of the the variety and the scale of what we were trying to achieve
0: how long was the deployment in total
1: normally there's six months i needed four months because um i was at the end of my tour as a platoon commander so my replacement was sort of brought in and then i i had to move on to another job mm. so that's when i went to be a uh, an infantry uh, at the recruitment centre. I was then a, a directing staff, sort of recruiting and uh, training recruits back where I'd done my training before.
0: And uh, for, that's a historical um, deployment for for the Paras down there. Yeah. I, I know I was I was doing just some reading about it. Um, you ha- had a corporal Brian Budd who yep. was posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross. Sounds like he just you know led a flanking maneuver against a- enemy Taliban fighters. Mm-hmm ended up be being killed but mm-hmm. you know was able to suppress enough fire that the rest of his team could maneuver there's another guy named um, Corporal Mark Wright mm-hmm. awarded the uh the the George Cross um pretty I mean did you read the story it's like uh, un- unbelievable story heartbreaking story mm-hmm. but they're in a minefield there's guys wounded um, he's as he's trying to get his guys out of this minefield, like he's singing happy birthday to one of his friends. That's, you know, in a really bad way. And he, he ends up dying of wounds, but I mean, just a, just a incredible, um, bravery and, and upholding that tradition of the paras, you know, to, to this day. Awesome stuff. Um, when you get back, I, I know you mentioned in the book that you were, you were, considering um going to selection Mm. for for the special special forces and then and then
1: (laughs) well that was the that was the natural progression like i say after after the tour um it's it's considered the the next step is is most of the officers then go to back to catrick to then train the next uh of recruits i mean it wasn't my first choice i didn't really want to go and be in the wind and the rain training recruits i I would have loved to have, have spent more time in Afghanistan, but um but that's that's the way it goes you know in in, in the army so i was up in katrick i would say that my morale was sort of flagging a little bit because i i was actually i wouldn't say i necessarily enjoyed afghanistan well i i, I, I liked I did, I did quite enjoy some of it um but but that's why i joined the army and so i was there i thought okay well you know go for special forces selection that that will be the next thing so um Passed all the initial tests, and it was meant to, I was meant to be going on the full selection in January, two thousand and nine, and I was at my peak fitness. I was good to go, and then I, I made the 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 error of um, of going to see my girlfriend in Mexico, um, who had a ranch, and um, in, in a bout of uh, silliness, I, I decided to get on a horse and do some rodeo on her ranch. The horse threw me over a six foot wall, and I broke my leg. Uh, a week before i was meant to be on selection so um i had to sort of limp in back to the barracks and obviously i was told i couldn't do selection um needless to say and what was worse was all of the jobs for the next deployment which was going to be happening in a few more months had already been taken so it was it was a crux point in my career and i was like well okay do i stay and then do a job that I don't enjoy for for two years, or or do I look at this as an opportunity? And um, it was a, it was a quite it was a pretty depressing time because I I you know I was desperate to get back out there and, and do what I loved the most, but but equally I didn't really fancy spending two years doing a desk job. That wasn't why I joined the military at all. So. I I rang up my I said, they, don't, they don't
0: tell you about those desk jobs when you join the military. That's not even a thing no, right? Exactly. There's no recruiting poster that shows if officer sitting at a desk making a PowerPoint. Exactly. slide. Exactly.
1: Yeah Excel is not what I <laughs> signed up for so I after sort of really, you know going through some heart-wrenching decision-making I thought you know what i think now's the time to to do something else and and actually in hindsight it was because i left hungry it was because i left still hankering for a bit of adventure and um um i didn't feel as though i'd done everything i wanted to do in in on that side of things that i probably it gave me the impetus to to do what came next so i i left and by a by a sort of uh, by a twist of luck i suppose when i because you have to usually give 12 months notice when you leave the military but when i rang up the um uh, army personnel somebody hadn't filled out the paperwork properly <laughs> so um i meant that I, I could actually leave in four months and my boss at the time said look just take the time off get yourself together so i was on full pay and off i went so as soon as my leg was fixed that was me onto whatever came next i didn't really have a plan other than we're getting thinking, used to that <laughs> <laughs> other than thinking actually now is probably the time i can go back to that schoolboy dream of, of somehow becoming an explorer
0: at what point did you climb Mara Peak?
1: Yeah, so that was in, that was again, that was just before I broke my leg. It was in October that okay. year. So I was, uh, again, a, a bit of downtime. Um, I was given the opportunity to do what, you know, is affectionately, you know, is adventure training in the army, which usually involves doing some hill walking in Wales. I wanted to do something a bit more exciting. So I decided to organize a proper mountaineering expedition to the Nepal Himalayas. Um, so I got together a bunch of the, junior ncos um at catrick who are you know my training staff and said let's go and climb a mountain none of them had climbed a mountain before um but being paras they all sort of said this sounds like fun it's three weeks off work so (laughs) off we go (laughs) and that was my introduction to proper um civilian style leadership in many ways because it was you know we were not in uniform we were doing uh learning a new skill um in a new environment so um Off we went, and we went to climb Mira Peak, which is not a technical mountain, but it's six and a half thousand meters, which is what's that? That's like I think it's about twenty-one
0: thousand
1: two hundred forty-seven feet. Uh, Spot on, good guess. (laughs) Um, So it's it's a pretty high mountain, and and the air's thin up there, and you know you can suffer from altitude sickness. So off we went. It's a three-week expedition. Um, and it was, it was actually pretty demanding, especially for some of the guys who'd never been to that altitude before. And I'd been backpacking in Nepal and I'd done that sort of thing, but I'd never, never, ever been to that sort of height. So it was, it was a really interesting lesson in, in motivating soldiers. who Soldiers love to complain at the best of times, um, especially when this is their vacation time. So um, it was all fun and games until we got to sort of 5,000 meters, so 15,000 feet. And that's when things get really tough and cold.
0: Yeah, you, you break it down really well. Um, I'll go to the book here. After more than 10 days of hard trekking, we finally reached the snow line where the temperatures plummeted to minus 27 degrees. And with gale force winds making the setup of camp a dreadful prospect, at least three of the others and I were suffering severe headaches, dehydration, and very cold feet as we tried unsuccessfully to sleep at 5,000 meters. On the summit day, we, gre- we were greeted with clear conditions but two of the local Sherpas decided to remain with the tents in camp rather than ascend to the top. I led the way with Jordy? Am I saying that yeah. I led the way with Jordy and our mountain guide Jason. We plodded through the thick snow, tied together in case a crevasse opened up. It was punishing, slow going, and every step was hard earned with short gasping breaths. The summit came into view, a few hundred meters ahead, but there was no time to celebrate. As we stopped for a short break, One of the soldiers approached me complaining that he couldn't feel his feet anymore. His boots had been on the tight side, and as a result, his toes were right up against the edge of the boot, As we'd been trained, I ordered him to remove his boots and socks, and I placed his bare toe inside my jacket right up in my armpit where it would be able to warm up to body temperature naturally. As we waited, I saw another soldier shifting about. He told me his feet too were numb. And so after a while, I offered the same service to him, but before long, my feet were also getting so cold, they were excruciating. We needed to move So once we'd taken a rest We pushed on another 100 meters to a crag By then, just before the final push to the summit Disaster struck A howling wind flared up the valley Followed immediately by a white blanket of cloud I knew instantly that even if it was short-lived It would add time onto our exposure Which might mean the difference between someone Keeping or losing their toes to frostbite We had trekked for days and planned for months No one wanted to give up Boss, one of the soldiers shouted, shouted, we can make it, it's not far to go, 200 meters more. I looked up into the murky abyss of frozen air and then back at the faces of the two shivering soldiers. I was torn. From the looks around me, it was clear the overwhelming urge of the group was to continue. These were all paratroopers, men proud of their own hardiness and expecting it above all from me, their leader. But I knew that if I decided to continue, I was putting all our safety in danger and the fault would be mine alone for any consequences. We turn back, I shouted. Now. I hauled the youngest of the crew to his feet and pointed down the slope back to where the camp was back to the camp where the Sherpas waited for us. The most headstrong of the soldiers muttered and shook his head. I didn't say anything or blame him. I was as disappointed as he was. We all knew that our chance of conquering the mountain was gone, at least for this expedition. Months of anticipation and weeks of physical training had gone to waste. As we got back to the tents and packed up the camp, we were all silent. It wasn't until hours later, when we descended beyond the snow line, and to a sheltered gully where the sun had warmed up the rocks that one of the senior soldiers approached me you made the right call there boss otherwise we might have died or at the very least we'd be we'd all be missing a few toes as we carried on down the trail the disappointment that we felt at not achieving our aim seemed to dissipate and we were glad to have come down unscathed having lived to fight another day I had not wanted to make the decision to turn back. It felt like failure, and I was worried about the impact it would have on my soldier's estimation of me. But as I discovered afterwards, even those who had wanted to continue at the time had a lot of respect for the decision in hindsight. Moreover, that defeat instilled a wonderful attitude in those eight soldiers. After the expected banter and complaining that all soldiers are good at, every single one of them said that the trip was one of the highlights of their military career. What's more, many of them later became serious climbers and mountaineers and went back to Summit Mara Peak. If I had made the popular decision that day rather than the right one, it could have been a very different story just another and look i i usually say this in the beginning of these things i'm obviously reading only like tiny sections of the book you got to get the book there's all kinds of lessons learned throughout this book about leadership about discovery about exploration just it's full of them so get the book um but that's a that's a good highlight a good lesson learned and this is now and so that's sort of your intro to well maybe i can do maybe i can do something like this in the civilian world
1: yeah it was, and, and so when I left, when I managed to get out of the um, out of the army, like I said, I broke my leg. I'd, I was disappointed at not being able to do special forces selection, but I was still hungry, and that was the that was the key ingredient because I was desperate to do something that I felt was was worthwhile. Um, most most of my fellow officers who were who left the military um, at the sort of rank of captain or junior major, they were sort of at the process of. Getting married, settling down, and, and wanting something slightly more stable—you were just which getting up. and I was just getting warmed up. So a lot of them went to work in London in finance or a consultancy, something with a bit of cash. At that stage, I wasn't motivated by by cash at all. I just wanted to go and have adventures and improve you things to myself. You said fun. You said I wanted to go have <laughs> adventures. Yeah, some of it was, of it was fun. Um, so I thought, there's got to be something in this. And so while I was kind of planning, I wanted to bring together my passions of, of writing. of I, I sort of had a, an amateur interest in photography. And of course, travel was kind of at the heart of everything that I did. So I was planning and I was chatting to a friend of mine, Tom Bodkin, who was um, at that stage also in the process of, of leaving the military. And we, we came up with this idea... Um, of setting up some sort of a travel company taking people on adventures expeditions um, he had a few months left to to before he left the military so in the meantime i volunteered for a for a charity uh, a friend of mine had set up a charity in africa in malawi and what they really needed more than anything else was vehicles they needed a couple of ambulances and so she was like is there any way you can you know somehow while well, you're sitting around Plotting your next trip? Why don't you send me some ambulances, raise some money, or something like that? So I said, okay, but we're going to do this the fun way. So I, I basically got together a bunch of my friends, um, told them to take two months leave, whatever they were doing, and we were going to buy the ambulances on eBay and drive them to Malawi, which is <laughs> ten thousand miles away. And that's what we did. I managed to raise probably about fifty grand, not a massive amount of money, but bought a couple of twenty-year-old Land Cruisers off the internet painted them white, taught myself basic mechanics, <laughs> stuck a flashing light on the top, and off we went. And we drove all the way through Europe, through the Middle East, went through Syria, uh, you know, all these crazy places. And two months later went to, you know, finally delivered these ambulances to to this little clinic in in Malawi. And it was such a rewarding experience. I mean, it was a heck of a road trip, but it was, in a, you know, it was for a good cause. And these ambulances are still being used today to save lives. And, and there was something about that that really... I found really rewarding and i thought well maybe if there's a way of commercializing this i can turn this into a lifestyle and and that's what i did so when tom finally did leave the army we ended up setting up a company called secret compass which basically um, offered military style expeditions in some of the most remote places in the world to civilian clients but with a very military ethos we're going from a to b it's going to be tough everyone needs to get stuck in everyone needs to wash their own dishes this is not a package tour let's go so the first trip the flagship trip we did was horse riding in northern afghanistan <laughs> which um, in 2011 <laughs> i think that was i um, up in a place called the wakan corridor which is completely unaffected by war and, and the taliban um but it was it, you know it sold out i couldn't believe it so the, how, the, how many people it was only about 12 or so people so small group trips The next one we did was um, mountain climbing on the Iraq-Iran border up in Kurdistan. (laughs) Um, And that was pretty special, too. We then went across the Sahara Desert in Sudan with camels. Um, we, We rafted down the Nile in South Sudan, walked across Madagascar, all these sorts of insane trips but it was so popular it wasn't long before we started getting the likes of discovery channel and national geographic calling us up saying look we've seen these kind of trips that you can do can you take our journalists and our film crews so that was a bit of a segue into the world of media and before we knew it we were taking these highly respected film crews and journalists and directors into syria iraq wherever you wanted to go and um it we met all sorts of people. I mean I, I ended up doing the sort of security for George Clooney at one point. It was it was wild. But um that was how it sort of led yeah. on well,
0: to is, is he an actor or something or a politician? <laughs> George Clooney. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know, he's a bit of both, isn't he? <laughs> Movie guy? Echo yeah, Charles. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. Jack. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was believing <laughs> you for I was like, <laughs> Hey uh, uh, at some point, I think it was 2010, you, you started writing your first book. Yes. And um you, you you write about it in this book, you write about writing your first book, and one of the one of the things you say you're like talking about the challenge of writing a book and the quote that i that I liked was you said, "Are you really going to feel more inspired tomorrow, or do you just need to be firm with yourself and get started it, once again, it's rationalization. well, I really don't feel like writing to today. maybe I can wait until tomorrow you so you started writing this book and you go through your methods you know with some you know about how you lay it out mm-hmm. and you're you're very Methodical about your writing. Um, how'd that book, you know, well, well, the publishers just jumped all over that one, huh?
1: <laughs> Sadly not. So this was when I was trying to set up a business. I was trying to have fun. I was trying to get over the fact that I'd left the army and, and wasn't. I hadn't quite achieved what I wanted to do. So I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is going <laughs> to write about that trip that we discussed before when I hitchhiked to India because I thought it was interesting. Um, whether or not anyone else did was another matter. I, I wrote this book, 100,000 Words, Um, pitched it to agents, publishers, and basically got told to piss off at every every turn. (laughs) Nobody was interested. They said, you know, nobody cares about your holidays. So um, it was quite disappointing. But I'd written 100,000 words. It was on my laptop. And I thought, okay, maybe this book's not good enough, but it's been a really useful learning curve. It's it's given me an introduction to writing and, and the process and that inspired me to to carry on and but i knew i needed to do something that was more impressive something that would get picked up and and that's how it led on to the sort of the the bigger expeditions later on
0: so you were thinking i've got to do cooler stuff if yeah. i'm going to write a book about it and people are actually going to be
1: interested in exactly. it exactly yeah
0: what was the first step towards that what, what was the trip that you said all right this is this is worth writing about
1: so, like I say, I was, was doing that all freaking these...
0: horse riding in <laughs> <laughs> Afghanistan
1: well, no they, none of those were big or bold enough. they were all cool trips, but they were two they were still two week you know trips for oh, weeks, you said two weeks, two weeks, yeah, these Got were all it. like short trips that the paying clients could come on and whilst it was fun guiding trips for paying clients, it wasn't the kind of stuff that I could write about, but it was it was all it was all leading in the in the direction. So were you
0: guys profitable?
1: Uh, quite the opposite. So I was, I was, I was homeless. I spent three years. Bro, you've
0: been homeless since you were like fourteen.
1: <laughs> no, but this this was proper homeless. I was, I had, uh, I basically whatever money I'd saved up from the army, I'd invested into this company with my buddy, which meant that I didn't have any money for rent. So I was basically staying on friends' floors um, for three years. But I also had a rule that I'd learnt in India. I'd, I'd stayed at a gurdwara at the uh, the uh, the Golden Temple in India, and this, it's part of the Sikh religion to offer hospitality but only for three days and three nights after that you can move on so i'd adopted this this i, I quite like that because you don't want to like you know sort of burn your bridges or or uh, outstay your welcome so i'd adopted this mentality and i was pretty rigid with it so for three years i never spent more than three nights in one place so I'd stay with friends, and even if they insisted, I stay longer. I said, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on." So I kind of did this big rotation through like, all my friends in <laughs> London. But it did mean that there was a few occasions where there was gaps, and I, I slept on benches. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I slept outside and whatever it took. And it was, it was a pretty tough experience because I, you know, I was kind of living on one or two meals a day maximum because that's all I could afford, especially in London. It's not cheap. And then. You know, I was surviving by going away on these short expeditions, where at least my <laughs> expenses were paid for. You're
0: stoked to go to Afghanistan <laughs> and ride a horse so you can get a meal, just
1: so I could get fed. Yeah, for sure. And then, but whenever I was back in London for like a week or two weeks, I was I was poor. I had no money.
0: What was the op tempo of these trips? How often were you going on those?
1: A lot. You know, it would be I'd be away for two or three weeks, then back for a couple of weeks, then away for. So it was basically nine or ten months of the year I was away.
0: Why wasn't the company profitable? I mean, I would imagine your clientele must have been people with a lot. Of money and for them the difference between how much would it cost if you wanted if i wanted to go horseback riding in afghanistan what were you going to charge me well it's probably weeks?
1: about two or three thousand pounds so five thousand dollars okay so not super money i mean we, we were mm-hmm. aiming at that high-end clientele right. but at that stage we just didn't have the contacts we didn't know the those circles of people so we were trying to aim at the more mid-range budgets people who were adventurous who had a bit of cash but not we're not talking billionaires here we're, mm-hmm. we're talking you know people that work in the city i mean we had all sorts of people teachers i mean people who just saved up all year to do that one particular trip
0: what about your buddy todd tom tom Tom. what about him where's he living
1: well he was married so he he'd sort of you know he'd already sort of um managed to get himself sorted uh so he had he had somewhere to live unlike me Mm -hmm. um so we were in slightly different places but um (laughs) but but, but for me it was like you know i was using all of these trips as an opportunity to to learn the craft of writing to do more photography so i'd go away and do this horse riding in afghanistan take some photographs and i'd try and sell them to you know, Lonely Planet guidebooks or the newspapers, whatever it might be. So I was trying to build up a skill set. Were you getting set. any bites on that? Yeah, I was. It took a while. I mean, I was doing my fair share of weddings and baby photos, but it it, all, it was all building up. And um, But it was on one of these trips. I was out in South Sudan doing a, making a film out there, um, Uh, it was a fishing (laughs) fishing show about a guy that was um fishing for nile perch in the middle of a war zone um the only problem was he he was didn't really catch any fish which (laughs) doesn't make for a particularly good fishing show um and and when we were back in juba which i don't know if you've been to juba but it's 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 there's nothing there i mean it's it, it the world's newest country at the time south sudan um it had about three miles of paved road in the entire country i mean even in the city center it was just like dirt huts so pretty rudimentary place. We were out there trying to make a show about fishing, but hadn't he not caught any fish. The whole thing was a bit of a disaster. Turns out that George Clooney was in town doing some of his humanitarian work. And um, he, he'd landed. We tried to get him on the show. We thought at least if we got George Clooney in the film, it's, it's going to sell just for the <laughs> sake that he's in it. Um, the only problem is that the, the cameraman who, who was supposed to be filming George Clooney because he was so starstruck, turns out halfway through the interview had forgotten to press record. So that was a disaster <laughs> as well. But we were out there, we were kind of, as a reputation within, within the film crew, um, we thought this this whole thing's a complete mess, there's shambles. And we're going to go back to Channel 4, who'd commissioned this thing, with our reputation in tatters at this point.
0: Did we, so they commissioned your company to film this? It wasn't
1: my company, I was just a freelance health and safety guy. I was you know, part of Secret Compass, but we'd, you know, we'd basically sorted so out the So you logistics. got
0: contracted out. Yeah. So... So Channel 4 is paying someone else to make
1: this show. To make the show. And you're just a helper. I was a helper doing all the behind-the-scenes logistics, safety, keeping people
0: fed and watered. And you recognize that this isn't going well. This yeah. guy hasn't caught a no freaking fish yet. He hasn't, he hasn't caught a fish. <laughs> George Clooney got got didn't the, show up.
1: He, yeah, exactly. I ended up having to be George Clooney's hand double because they <laughs> screwed up the first start of the interview. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it was pretty bad. But that's how I met a guy called Neil. He was the, the second, um, he was the producer, director on the show, a second cameraman. And he said, look, Lev, you know, we could do this ourselves. Why don't, you get, why don't we film one of your expeditions? You know, cut the crap. Let's go and do something cool. He said, have you got any ideas? And we were in South Sudan on the banks of the Nile. And I sort of looked left and right, saw this whopping great big river. And I said, well, I wonder if anyone's ever walked the length of the River Nile. And he said, well, I'd highly doubt it because <laughs> it's 4,500 miles long and, and full of war zones. So I said, well, let's do it. And so that's where the idea was born. Um, I decided I I wanted to be the first person to walk the entire length of the River Nile. And I thought "That's, that's big enough and bold enough to write a book about and get published.
0: So that was the plan.
1: And that was the plan. That was back in 2012. And it took me about... Almost two years, certainly 18 months of planning, fundraising, trying to get TV interest, trying to get a publisher, all that sort of stuff. But I was determined that come what may, without even, even if we don't get the support of TV or, or a book, I'm going to go and do this. And just by committing mentally, I think that's what did it. It was the confidence of then just walking into these meetings saying, screw you, even if you don't give me any money, I'm doing it. And I think people saw that. And the, and the sort of the I guess the credibility of having been a paratrooper mm. that that got people bought into this vision, and and somehow I managed to get a the TV commission, uh, book publishing deal, and everything else, and got the whole thing fully funded, and so off I went. Took nine months, walked for four and a half thousand miles from Rwanda through Tanzania um, through Uganda, South Sudan, all the way to the Mediterranean in Egypt.
0: And that was a that was a rough one. I mean, I I know um, in reading through this. Mm. You had one of the guys that was with you a guy matt, matt matthew power
1: yeah matthew he was a
0: journalist and yeah well, he he, he sadly, died.
1: yeah he 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 came out to write about me for a for a magazine um and and sadly passed away from heat stroke on the way and that that was a real kick at the ass because you know it it brought it home that this was real this wasn't just some some trip away, um, you know, stuff stuff can, can go wrong, and sadly does go wrong sometimes. But but it really brought it home, and it, it made me really question the validity of this. You know, what was, was what I was doing right? You know, um, but you know it happened, and I thought I've got to carry on. To, I've got to finish this um, for, for his legacy as much as anything else. To to make if if I give up now, then what was the whole point in any of it? So
0: so this was. So a TV crew is with you and they're filming? That's, Not the that's whole
1: time, no. I mean, the, the journey, I, at the time when I set off, I didn't know how long this would take. I'd anticipated about a year. And, you know, you, you can't afford to pay a, a crew for a 12 months to follow me around. So they came out four or five times for anywhere between three or four days in a week. So they were only on the ground probably a total of about a month out of the nine months that I was... I was on my own, all with local guides. You know, I I always try and have a local person with me as an accompaniment. But places like Sudan, they couldn't even get in because they weren't issuing issuing journalist visas. So I was on my own for for like two months in Sudan.
0: How many miles were you doing a day?
1: Um, So I started doing probably, you know, 10 miles a day in in places like Rwanda, where it's quite hilly. Um, But when I was really into my stride in, in the desert in Sudan. I mean, it was hot. It was sort of August, September time with with 120 degrees in the desert, but probably averaging 45 to 50 kilometers, so 30 miles a day.
0: And then this TV show, this is a TV show that eventually? So or is it like a one no, documentary show? show? So
1: it was a four-part series, Walking the Nile, which then aired in the UK and in in the states and and globally and it was a huge success far more than i'd ever anticipated um book became a bestseller and yeah it changed my life you know i suddenly wasn't homeless anymore (laughs) (laughs) when
0: when the is it like on netflix where do you watch it
1: uh it was on discovery channel in the us it was on channel four in the uk but you know you can still find it find it online yeah Still out there.
0: Did you feel like these bastards that filmed it only came on this thing for like three <laughs> weeks and I was out there for nine months?
1: <laughs> well, we all became friends and actually to this day, like Neil, who's the, the, the guy who originally inspired me to do this for TV. Um, we're still, you know, best buddies and we still, we, you know, I've now set up my own production company. So I make shows for other people and, and for myself as well. And he's on the team. So, um, so yeah, we, we all became very close. I mean, you tend to when you're in those sorts of circumstances. I mean, we, we were in South Sudan Middle of a war zone, you know. It was. Uh, I mean, they weren't there at this time. It was just. It was just me. But um
0: I was going to say because you become close, and then they're like, "Hey, I'm out, we're going back to England <laughs> for two months." Well, all the exciting, slogging.
1: all the exciting things happened when they weren't there. I mean, we were in a place called Bor. This was dur- during the, um just the uh the sort of uh, there was a big big civil war happening in South Sudan. It was um they just got the new country, but there was still a lot of tribal fighting. I turned up in this town called Bor. Uh, the same morning that sixty members of a, of a tribe had been murdered inside a, inside the United Nations refugee camp, um, the, the whole thing was kicking off. I found myself on top of a the, you know this bombed out hotel with the rebels approaching on one side, you know, tracer fire going o- overheads. So there was mortars landing nearby, and the only alternative, apart from watching the fireworks display, was climbing down the, the ladder into the river Nile, which was filled with crocodiles. So it was it was a pretty hairy time and lots of things, you know, like I say can and, and do go wrong, but turns out that makes for good TV. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> then you, so you get done with that, you you got a place to live now, you're kind of going in a different direction as far as financially. <laughs> <laughs> uh but now you got to start plotting on things, like mm. are you thinking to yourself, all right, I got to one up myself?
1: Well, it came pretty quickly, you know, the, the show was successful um i was then asked you know literally a couple of months later where's next and of course people want bigger and better i thought well i've just walked the entire length of the river nile <laughs> i mean what's bigger and better than that so i thought well what i'm gonna do is i don't want to be a one-hit wonder or a sort of flash in the pan i need to sort of think the long game so i i sort of squared it away in my own mind the kind of Journeys that I wanted to do, the kind of places that I wanted to visit, and I wrote down sort of my values, the the things that I will not move away from. And it was actually going back to my degree, doing my degree at university. I I said, I'm going to I'm going to visit places that hold a genuine interest, Um, because at this stage I was getting all sorts of offers to go and build, you know, sort of log cabins in 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 the woods in Alaska and do fishing shows and do cooking shows, all of which are great and interesting. But if I was to Actually, see this as a long-term career. I need to sort of carve my own niche, and so um, I, th- I thought by doing journeys either on foot or certainly at the slowest pace into places that have got a bit of a bad reputation, there's a, there's an interesting way of shining a spotlight <laughs> on places that really need it. So I thought, why not pick a geographical feature? I the Himalayas seem the next obvious choice, the biggest mountain range in the world, Mount Everest, and, and walk the length of that. So I thought I'm going to start. Uh, at the place that place cl- very close to my heart, Afghanistan, in the Pamir Mountains, and walk all the way to the Tibetan Plateau, and that was another journey of 3,000 miles, and that took about six months as well. So that was the next big journey, which happened twelve months later, and then ever since then, I've been doing one big journey pretty much every year since then.
0: Are you going solo? Were you solo when you walked the Nile?
1: Uh, well, like I said, I always have a a local guide. They okay. would they would change over Got depending it. on which country I was in. So I was the only one to do the entire.
0: What about the Himalayas, solo? Uh, again, other than guides, local guides, local yeah, people.
1: and the crew would fly out and meet me a, along the way to, to film what they thought were the, the bankers, and then. Uh, but it, you know, it, it's always the way that the most interesting stuff happens when you're on your either on your own or, or in a very small crew. Because the moment you've got a car with a with a crew there, things are not quite the same. People sort of close up a bit, and they're not as open. So, uh, a lot of the interesting stuff happens, um, you know, when when you're unaccompanied, um, which is what happened when I was in Nepal and my car was I was the one time (laughs) is the, the irony of a walking expedition is the one time um, that I decided to get in a taxi because I was told I couldn't camp in it in this particular village and I had to move on to the next. Um, That was when I had a pretty big accident.
0: Yeah. Talk talk us through, you write about it in the book. Talk us through that one.
1: So it was, um, I'll never forget it. It was the 19th of August, 2015. Um, I was, I was in a town called Musikot, with my local guide, Binod, and actually my brother who'd flown out to meet me a day before to join me for a week of what was his annual holiday. God. Um, <laughs> you, it was, I know the
0: story, so I can <laughs> just imagine your brother. Yeah, cool. You want to go on some vacation?
1: Yeah. So, um, so we're in the mountains, and it was just, it was almost nighttime. Uh, it was getting dark. And most of the time, you know, I'd, I'd already been walking for three months here. Um, we just camp in the villages or stay in locals' houses, whatever it whatever it took. But there was a, a Maoist insurrection in this part of Nepal, so the communists were were taking over villages, and they didn't take kindly to to foreigners because you know they they just said and they weren't aggressive. They just said, "Look, you can't stay here. Go to the town, and then you can come back tomorrow and carry on your walk. But you're not you can't stay in this village because we're having an internal <laughs> dispute." So we said fine. So we got a, a local taxi, got in it, drove over the mountain pass, and just as we were going over the crest of the cliff the brakes failed so the car goes careering down this 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 uh, road and unable to slow down hits the side of the wall and bounces straight off this this cliff top and um, when i say cliff top it was uh it was a huge fall straight into the forest below um about 150 meters which is what's that 450 mm-hmm. feet to the bottom of the gorge and somehow you know again thank you my lucky stars do you have I, a seat belt on uh, there were no seatbelts in this car. I mean, it's a, it's. A, it was I an, guess the airbags Indian weren't popping out either. There was no airbags. Um, what kind of car was it? It was a Mahindra Jeep. So it was a metal frame. Thankfully, not some, not some cheap stuff. But it was yeah. It was straight off the edge, and and that was me. I thought this is how where long.
0: I'm how long were you no brake rolling down the hill?
1: Difficult to tell. I, th- I think probably ten seconds. I mean, the driver was trying to bounce it against the wall to to slow it down. But you can imagine these roads. It's just a dirt track. Sheer sheer sort of rock face on the one hand and then a drop off no no barriers nothing like that and it was just a f- completely pitch of pitch black middle of the night uh and that was it i thought i was i thought i was a goner and um it was almost comedic in the the sense that it it didn't it literally flew off the edge and we were airborne <laughs> for what felt like an eternity it was probably just a few seconds but it was the only part of the uh the, the roadside where there were no trees because it was forested this this bank. Um, but we went off the pit where there was obviously a river running through, so it just kept on going. And and when we finally did hit the deck, it bounced and rolled, and probably rolled 10 times, all the way to the bottom of the valley. And somehow, I stayed in the vehicle. The driver and and this random other um, guy that he'd picked up, a local, had been thrown through the windscreen somewhere up on the mountain. We stayed in the car and, yeah, made it all the way to the bottom, at which point I thought I'd lost my arm because I couldn't feel it or see it. Um, I managed to...
0: When the car
1: settles. Yeah, when it finally settles.
0: Are it, you conscious this conscious, whole time? i
1: conscious the whole time. Yeah.
0: What do you say to your brother
1: besides say, bro, I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I you out here. <laughs> it was... I can thank my brother because... When I when I sort of figured out where I was, I crawled out of the car, thought I'd lost my arm. I, my first instinct was to go and find my arm. You know that scene on the beach in Saving Private Ryan where he's looking, holding his arm mm-hmm. looking slightly dazed and confused? that was me in this car i went i couldn't find it then i realized it was still attached but i couldn't feel it it was pointing the wrong way it was completely i mean you can see the Mm -hmm. scar there um i had to sort of snap it back into place that's when the pain started and i think it was me screaming that woke my brother up and he was relatively uninjured i mean he'd been bashed around but he hadn't got anything broken so i couldn't move i was in such pain Binod, the guide he was pretty much unconscious um, and Pete, my brother, he he came over, and um, you know he he's done a f- he'd done a few trips, but nothing like this. You know he he, he was working in finance. You know he sort of uh, <laughs> he's back in finance. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's the interesting thing was Pete rescued us. He went and, and shouted for help. Luckily, the the sound of the car crashing had woken up some local villagers a mile away, and they'd come to investigate. Probably took about an hour, maybe for for enough locals to come to carry us out, but then they had to carry us a mile. Through the jungle to the local village. Were um, you weren't uh, bleeding. I mean, my, I wasn't bleeding, but I was you weren't like pain. bleeding, bleeding like you weren't no. life threatening blood. No, loss. it was just my arm was just completely mangled. Um, the the driver sadly was in a very different position. He'd broken everything, in his body, his neck. As you know, he oh. was somewhere up the mountains. So had to go and find him. We were taken to a very small clinic in the local village. And when I say small, I mean there's like chickens running around the water. This was basic stuff. Um, but luckily they yes haven't. that qualifies they, as basic they, when they you do.
0: roll into the hospital and there's chickens <laughs> yep.
1: they um but they had morphine thankfully so that that you know took away some of the pain but yeah my brother he he coordinated the rescue it took three days though because it was the rainy season we couldn't get a helicopter in the roads were all washed away um so it took three days for a helicopter to come so it was a it was a trying time to say the least and, and i think my brother was possibly regretting his uh, his holiday destination but um but yeah he, he was a real trooper throughout the the whole experience and um yeah so that 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 really disrupted the trip a little bit but i had to fly back to the uk for surgery because they couldn't do it in Kathmandu because it was just after the 2015 earthquake which had screwed all the hospitals so i went back to the uk had surgery they fixed my arm, but then I couldn't give up. This was my, I'd chosen this. This was my career. I wasn't going to give up. So I, uh, whatever it was, 45 days later, I flew back out to Nepal, went back to the car, still there in the jungle, rusting over and carried on walking for another three months.
0: The TV show came out?
1: Yeah, they came out. They enjoyed that bit. <laughs> they liked they filmed me in hospital, getting surgery and all the rest of it.
0: And, and then this becomes another TV show. And mm-hmm. did you write another book about this yeah, one? Yeah,
1: wrote a book Yeah, called Walking the Himalayas. Keep it simple. And um, and then they, of course, they said, what's next? So I had to come up with another one. <laughs> <laughs> You're painting uh,
0: yourself into a corner, man. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. So um, what was the next one? Walking the Americas. Um, so I wanted to do something in Central America. I'd had this girlfriend, this Mexican girlfriend, who, so I knew Mexico quite well. Uh, but I was fascinated by the ancient Mayan civilization. I wanted to go to see places like Honduras and... Um, Guatemala and in Colombia because I knew that would have a bit of edge and so I decided to walk (laughs) from where the Spanish first landed um, on the Yucatan Peninsula give it a bit of historical context all the way to South America across the Darien Gap which um, is probably one of the most remote and fearsome stretches of jungle anywhere in the world so that was another six months another 2,000 miles of walking um again lots of scrapes there as well
0: and this is the same thing tv crews coming out joining you for For four or five days here and there wherever they think there's going to be the most mayhem is when they're showing up you're carrying a freaking backpack with like a water bottle yeah and 50 bucks
1: (laughs) yeah yeah And, and off we went and um and that, that, was a re- that was actually a really enjoyable journey because the guy that came with me, my, my guide for that one was actually a guy who I'd known for a number of years called Alberto, who was the guy that got me into photography in the first place. And he'd lived in Mexico. He'd never walked anywhere in his life anywhere and he he certainly wasn't a professional guide he was a studio photographer he was far more at home sitting on yachts with supermodels but he had just got divorced and was looking for an adventure so i said look mate come with me we're gonna go and have some fun and off we went and we walked for um yeah for six months through all these random countries and we went through the ganglands in honduras met um you know the sort of the cartels along the way we we sort of had meetings with all sorts of gangsters it was that was a wild trip as well
0: you, what about a GoPro
1: I so I had this little flip camera the, the interesting thing is actually you'd think sometimes that it would be tricky to to film in these places but actually having a camera does open up conversations people are like oh, hang on I want my photograph taken or I want you t- I want to tell you my story and particularly in places that don't get many tourists because mm-hmm. if you go to touristy places people aren't that they're not that interested in getting the photos taken or or telling you their story. But if you go to Honduras, I mean, there's one, one story from there. We were in um, a town called San Pedro Sula, which other than Ciudad Juarez, I think was the murder capital of the world. This is where the two main uh, cartels, you've got MS-13 and Barrio 18, these two rival gangs that, that do pretty bad things to each other, um, are, are based. They They've got their own, you know, neighbourhoods and... We wanted to walk straight through the city. And the only way to do so was to cross between these two ganglands. But of course, the police and the army were like, look, we don't go in there. You can't, you, you can't rely on us for backing. So we asked around and Alberto was sort of doing all the translation. And we, we eventually found this street pastor who said, look, I know the gang leaders of both of these guys. I can probably get you in if, if you want. I said, OK, well, let me ask the question. So he got his he got two phones out, actually, and he called the leaders of both gangs and had them on speakerphone. Next to each other, which is bizarre. Both of these leaders were both in jail, right? Because <laughs> they were. And uh, he because got them. <laughs> they were <laughs> And he got them both on speakerphone and said, Look, I've got these two two gringos. I mean, he wasn't Alberto's was a <laughs> Mexican, but he called us both gringos. He said, Look, they want to walk through your through your turf. Um, you know, will you will you let them? And um to my surprise, these both these leaders like yeah, absolutely, no problem, you know, as long as you give a fair and honest representation of of, of of our story, we want to tell you our story and why we have these gangs. But he said, just give us 24 hours because we're just going to go and clean up the graffiti and pick up the trash from the streets. They wanted to show the best side of their gang wars. <laughs> and it was the most bizarre experience. But we went through these, these areas, escorted by these kids, 10, 12-year-olds, covered in tattoos, with with pistols down their jeans, and they showed us the Casa Locas, the crazy house where they torture each other. And they, they should, oh, yeah, this is where we killed, you know, this person. This is where we hung. It was like tragic stuff, but in the most surreal setting. And it, 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 was, it was a very bizarre experience to go and see that. And we saw a guy shot at the side of the street, you know, just in, just, yeah, from these gang wars. So, and, and, and I'm not into voyeurism. I don't go there to, to sort of glamorize any of this. It's trying to show what, you know the, the, what the struggle is like for a lot of people living in these circumstances and, and not shy away from some of those really difficult but compelling stories
0: now did you did you have a film crew there when you did that section
1: they they had come out and and we had a real struggle with the channel to to sort of allow us to go into these places because the, you can imagine the lawyers back home yeah. sort of like oh this is this is too sketchy we're not sure about this yeah, but, plus
0: people with brains back home <laughs> <are> like bro
1: <laughs> but you know i think a lot of it was down to the fact that we'd got we'd found this guy who he wasn't a cowboy he, he was like i i live i've lived in these in in on this on in these neighborhoods all my life and
0: So did the camera crew come through or not?
1: So they cut. Yeah, they came. They did. So
0: all that footage. And so So. what's that? What's that show called? Walking.
1: Walking the Americas. Walking the Americas. Mm -hmm. And how
0: many hours is one of these? The series. Um,
1: Each one's. I mean, the Nile was four episodes, four hours. Himalayas was five. I think Walking the Americas was five as well. Yeah.
0: Okay. So now you get back from that and you've got to step it up again right
1: <laughs> okay so the next one basically this is what you're getting into going back to my sort of original point of going back to places that i'd studied my studies at university had mainly been about um you know the middle east about places where the, the old british empire had had a, a legacy or places in you know in the news now current affairs and obviously um russia iran were both pretty uh high up on the agenda this was back in 2017 Putin sort of just getting re-elected, all this sort of stuff. So I wanted to go and explore that region more. The Caucasus as a historical region is fascinating. So I thought, why not do a journey from Europe into Asia over the Caucasus Mountains, from Russia into Iran? We called that one Crossing the Wild Frontier. So we started on the Black Sea, finished on the Caspian Sea, and going through places like Chechnya, Dagestan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, and then finished in Iran. Um, getting travel permits to go into those places was, was actually quite tricky but you know we had to apply to to Russia and the first thing they ask on your visa application is have you or have you ever served in a foreign military so they dig deep into your background but thankfully they you know they let me in the same with Iran I mean they're, they're getting into Iran was a tricky one because initially they were like no way we don't let you know especially not from the, from, from the UK we're, we're not friends <laughs> right now Um eventually through a contact i was told that i could meet uh, a person from the iranian embassy but not at the embassy it was just a very mysterious lady who wouldn't give me her name with sunglasses met me in a cafe in in south kensington in london and said what do you want i said there's a link to all my shows go and see for yourself i gave her a copy of my books and she said okay i'll go away and read them and the next day it was on the president, on um, you know, the president's or prime minister's desk of of Iran, and and, and I got approved a visa. Mm. Um, and I think what they liked is the fact that I'm I'm not there to do all on propaganda, but I'm not shying away from the hard stories either. But I'm not I'm certainly not there to do investigative journalism to with an agenda based sort of sort of approach. I'm there to show what life is like for normal people, and and they let me in, and so I did this amazing trip through places that you you just don't get a fair understanding of, especially places like Chechnya. Um, And and that was a really, really fascinating journey. Thankfully, nothing went particularly wrong on that one. I just got a really great understanding of what what the region was like.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, a lot of times when people ask me, and I was just asked this, I was getting interviewed the other day, and, you know, people start asking about, well, the war in Iraq, should we have been there and all this? Was it, is it the moral right thing to do and a lot of times what I try and do in those situations is I try and bring things down to a very granular level of mm. what it was like on the ground. And what I, what I like about what you're, what you're doing is you're going, be, I guess the word is beneath the politics. I don't know if that's going to sound right, but you're going beneath the political atmosphere mm. to the actual other human beings that are living their lives, that are you know trying to earn a living trying to raise their family trying to build their future and there's so much commonality that gets missed and that's that's often what I also say about Iraq you know it's like mm. i would kick in the door to a building and there'd be you know a family in there and they the, the dad's trying to build a business of selling whatever dates and the mom's you know trying to sew stuff that she can sell in the neighborhood and the kids are wanting to play soccer and they're just normal people and yet you can never you can never see that when you when it's all screened out by the political viewpoint. So what what I what's is clicking for me now and I'm starting to understand is that you're going beneath that level in talking to the people on the ground and getting a real look and probably I'm assuming exposing all these commonalities that we have as human beings with other human beings.
1: Yeah, and I mean that was never an outright intention. It's just sort of happened throughout these journeys is, is trying to find out what what does unite us and actually trying to find those human stories. And, and actually, there's a lot of positivity. And, and what I found is the sense of hospitality, you know, has been overwhelming throughout. And, and that I, I've seen that in in some of the places that you wouldn't expect it
0: yeah and even even you know i I started off joking in the early part of this you know no one would ever invite me in their house and then as i'm sitting here listening to you talk and i've been to i mean obviously i've been all over the world and been to all kinds of different countries and it's the same thing when you actually when you actually get past that get but underneath that political um vision that we have of a place there's you know i've had people treat me unbelievably well all over the world and that's why you have to get you have to you, ha, you have to make those human connections with other people and you'll realize oh yeah they'll they'll help you out i mean m- like you said most people they'll they'll give you some water if you need some water they'll pull over the side of the road and help you if you need it that's ab- absolutely so that's that's uh very enlightening
1: I th- i'll never forget when i was on the nile this was back in 2014 i was in sudan and it was uh, this was a bit with, with there's no crew there it was it was me with with a local guy called moez and it was getting very hot we couldn't carry enough water just to survive so we had to go and buy some camels from the local market now i don't know how to keep a camel you know <laughs> keep a camel going so we thought we would better employ a couple of bedouin camel handlers to come with us so for two months we trekked across the entire sahara following the river nile there was one bit of the nile where um, we had to go sort of slightly into the desert because there was some security issues by the, um, by the Nile. So we were going through these villages and everyone was so hospitable. People were saying, come in, have, a, you know, have some of our water. And It was almost, it, it was so overwhelming. We were getting slowed down because we needed to reach the Egyptian border um, before Ramadan because that, that was the basis for which these two camel handlers said that we'll come with you, but only for 50 days because we're going to get back to our families. So we, that was the deadline. That was the hard stop so off we went and we were getting further and further behind schedule because of the hospitality because people say i oh, come and teach my kids english and this that, and the other so we uh, my two camel handlers were on the verge of revolt at this stage so we're, we're, we're going we're going home if you're gonna you know mess around doing your silly filming and this that. so I, we came to an agreement we said okay what we'll do is day on day off we'll one day we'll go through the villages where we'll meet people and talk and film and this you know all that and then we'll do another day Walking in the desert avoiding the villages and camping out in the desert and there we can cover more ground but uh, there there was one occasion where we'd we'd done this we're in the middle of the desert about a mile away from the nearest village we set up our our camp made a little fire and and the local villages a mile away must have seen the flickering of the flames in the desert and it wasn't long before a crowd of men came came out to investigate they said what are you doing and we said well we explained that we were trying to avoid their hospitality in the most polite terms possible. And they said they were getting really upset by this. So, no, you must come. And we said, no. One guy stormed off and he came back half an hour later. He carried his bed on his head and he said, if you're not going to come into my house, my home is coming to you. And that, I think, really demonstrates the, the incredible hospitality. I can't remember. I can't ever imagine that happening back in London if a Sudanese man was sort of passing down the street. But it's, it's moments like that that really do kind of restore your faith in humankind
0: but you still have to step it up a little bit it seems like we're just getting we're just getting more and more hostile environments and so now it's like 2017 2018 the freaking war in iraq and syria with isis is just flaring up flaring up so of course you're like a moth (laughs) drawn to the fire so that's the next one, right?
1: So I'd always been fascinated by the Middle East. Like I mentioned before, I, in 2003, I, I was in Iraq. Um, I like the way you kick my... these
0: stories off with, like, I've always been fascinated <laughs> with, you know, how sharp a shark's teeth could be. <laughs> <laughs> all so, right, so you got this fascination with the Middle
1: East. So I'd been there in 2003, which is when I hitchhiked through Baghdad and all this, you know. So... I'd wanted to return to to Iraq. I'd wanted to see more of the region ever since. And I actually, in fact, after the Nile, I pitched the idea of doing a trip around the Arabian Peninsula to the powers that be within TV. And sadly, they said no. They said one, it's probably too dangerous, and two, they didn't feel as though there was sufficient interest. They they said, in fact, the word, the exact words were. That's just the realm of current affairs and news. Nobody, nobody's interested in the Middle East as a destination. Or as a place to, to find out more about. And I thought that was just a disappointing answer. So you're on. I'd pitched this. You know, After the Himalayas, I pitched it again. They said, no, let's do the Americas. After that, I pitched it again. They said, no, again. And that just wound me up. So after the Russia to Iran expedition, I was like, I am doing the Middle East. I want to go to Arabia. Come what may, We're the way out of you. So I've pretty much you know, got told, no, we're not doing it. By by the TV company, by the TV guys, and um, I said, "Well, I'm doing it," which didn't didn't go down well in TV land in the UK. But I decided that was their problem, so I set up my own production company to facilitate this. When you say
0: TV people, these are
1: this uh, is the channel. This yeah. is the channel. This is the channel.
0: And and you're pitching that. Is it multiple channels that you're pitching to? Or is it uh, just? No, this is just like this straight, is straight up just one? BBC. I, That's I was.
1: A... It wasn't the BBC. It was it was Channel Four. Okay. Yeah. Um. They but you know it then got syndicated out to discovery channel and whoever else wants to buy it internationally
0: so you're pitching to the people that have made your other shows hey let me do this one and they're like look no no not happening and you just say all right cool i'm doing it anyways
1: yeah so i wouldn't say i got sacked but i kind of (laughs) they said okay well you're not working with us if that's the case so i said okay that's fine i'm gonna go and do it so i set up my own production company and basically self-financed this expedition with a couple of mates, my friend Dave and Simon, who chipped in. And going back to that thing about empowering people and bringing people on the team, I said, look, if we all chip in the same amount of cash, we'll take up the same amount of profit at the end of the day. And they said, okay. And these are guys who'd helped me before on shows doing the health and safety. And I got Neil, my, my, my mate who's the director, to come on board. So we basically just clubbed together and off we went. And actually it freed up so many things because I was getting more and more frustrated with... Um, more and more restrictions and limitations on how things were produced and, and actually I felt like my creative sort of my personal creative spirit was being somewhat suppressed a little bit so I said okay I'm going to give this a go what's the worst that can happen so we decided to go and just do this and and the idea was to go and look at the Arabian Peninsula and, and all the countries that, that make that up um, in the same way um, not necessarily walking the whole route this time because there's a lot of empty, de- empty stretches of desert where not much goes on, but but certainly hitchhiking and, and, and traveling with locals. So the plan was to start up on the Turkish border with, with Syria up in Rojava and the Kurdish region and basically walk, travel, hitchhike, whatever, all the way around the entire gulf and then finish up at Lebanon in the, in the historic city of Byblos, which is the oldest city in the world. Um, and revisit some of these places I've been to on my earlier travels including Baghdad and to create a Mosul now Of course, this was in the in the height of the war against Isis. They still weren't defeated in Syria and Iraq um, So it was a pretty big challenge um, But doing it very light footprint it was only there was only ever three others traveling at once We it meant that we could actually go and achieve something that had never been done before which is actually travel through all these multiple countries so Going through places like Syria, we were embedded with the the, the Kurdish militia. Um, in Iraq, we managed to join uh, a group called the Hashid, um, the, the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces, who are sometimes the bad guys, but these are the guys fighting against ISIS on this occasion, but they're also Iranian-backed militias. Um, I was embedded with them on the final Hawija offensive, which was the final battle against ISIS in Iraq. Um, on the front line, I mean that was that was something else. I mean it, it was it was an entire Afghan tour in three days. I mean it was it was intense. Um, so now
0: you guys are now you guys are the camera crew. We Is are the camera just crew. Just the three it's of just you. Just three of us. Yeah. So now you got cameras rolling all the time. And I watch some of your some of the stuff that's on YouTube. Yeah. I watch you rolling up to that offensive mm. and the guy's like all right lunch break and <laughs> there's some you know having work with the iraqi soldiers a bunch so i was yeah. like mm, i know what's going on there i know what that feels like yeah um uh but but like what was what was the proximity to the fighting there? were you getting right in it oh, was no, right happening? in it
1: yeah i mean it was it was a it was kind of bizarre experience because we managed to hitch a lift to the front line where these sort of uh that you know the the iraqi volunteers these weren't the iraqi army these were literally the guys too old or too young to Mm -hmm. join the to join the military and they were fighting on their home turf they were fighting their neighbors so these were mainly sheer militiamen fighters who'd volunteered mainly to come out of retirement to basically going you know kick isis off the off the off the land so we were rolling up not i mean they had about 12 main battle tanks but mostly these guys were in flip-flops and toyota Pickups, you know, with a, with a 50 car mounted on the on, on the back and, and driving in a straight line, no, ta- no tactics, no strategy, literally a taxi to the front line. So we got a taxi to the front line, said, well, drop us off here, hitched a ride on a tank, just jumped on a tank and just drove. The main, the point vehicle was a bulldozer with this iraqi dude with a cowboy hat i mean it (laughs) was absolutely crazy (laughs) yes smoking a cigar as the bullets were pinging off the front of this bulldozer and it was just a straight line waiting to get ambushed and we got ambushed and you know you could see the black flags of isis in these villages and we just drive up to them spread out bomb the shit out of it and then go in there and we were in the mix you know right on the front line filming everything and um liberating these villages and um, capturing isis we caught three isis commanders I've, I've still got have still got one of the flags at home actually that I took with me, um, but it was it was quite a, it was it felt a very important and historical moment. You know these when when the villages were liberated and they caught the the command the ISIS uh, fighters, the women would come out they'd rip their burqas off and they were thanking these Iraqi volunteers for, for rescuing them. Some of these women hadn't been outside of their own compound for three years, mm-hmm. so, so <laughs> it was it was a, it was a very powerful thing to to be witness to.
0: Yeah, we had a, a, another guest on and covered another book on here, um, Holly, who whose book, Only Cry for the Living, and she interviewed a lot of those women mm-hmm. and what they went through. So, you know, liberation was uh, the the understatement of the year for what was happening to the, to the people mm-hmm. inside those villages that were, you know, and cities that were, yeah. were run by ISIS. Um, did you... What are you? You're not. I I know that you're. You don't carry a weapon when you do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, you just wearing body armor.
1: We we managed to pick up some body armor from a bill. You know, just bought some from the local shop and 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 off you go. But um, yeah, it, going through the sort of the urban fighting in places like Sharkat. I mean, we were in Mosul. This was a week or two after it had been liberated from ISIS. I mean, you know, there was there was still a lot of clear op- operations going on. Um, you've obviously got to be careful but you know i've been doing this for, for long enough to know what to do and what not to do but at the same time we wanted to we wanted to see what was going on mm-hmm. because nobody was filming this you know the only news reports that were coming out were coming out from baghdad or uh, bilan yeah. very few people were getting onto the front line and actually seeing what life is like for, on both sides you know and we we, we met these isis fighters we, we got a camera in their face and um that, that was quite rare so it was it was fascinating to, to see what was going on and to see the the reality of life and and, and these guys the, the the volunteers who were fighting they'd been fighting solidly for three years so you mentioned the, the lunch break I mean literally in the middle of the battle the the, 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 the the truck turned up with with the chicken sandwiches on on the back and and people just. Stop! They're like, well, this, the fight's not going anywhere, and everyone just sat down and, and and had their chicken sandwich, and then carried on. And it was it was quite a b- bizarre experience, but it was no different than being on, on exercise in Salisbury Plain with the British Army, really.
0: Uh, as you as you wrap up, um, getting like, how how did you how did you decide it's time to move on? Was it when was it like Missoula was now pretty much done? Was it what, what what made you decide? All right, we can we can move on now.
1: So on the last day, I mean we'd been attached with these guys, we'd, we'd seen Mosul, we'd been attached to the to the to the to the frontline fighting units for for a couple of days. There was one guy, I mean it kind of it it all sunk in. I mean one we'd we'd kind of got enough fighting footage and we didn't want this show to be entirely about for the fighting. But but two, I met this one guy. Um we'd been told we must meet him. His name was Abu Tassin. Now Abu Tassin, his nickname was the Hawkeye. He was Iraq's most feared sniper. He'd been fighting you know, he was 65 years old. He'd fought in every war since 1973 against the Israelis. He'd fought in Bosnia and Chechnya. He'd fought in ninety-one in the Gulf against, you know, the Americans. He'd fought in 2003 against the British in Basra. He'd fought in 2007 against you, probably, in, in, um, in Iraq. Um, in Fallujah, rather. And, um, and he'd come out of retirement to fight against ISIS.
0: So is he a Shia guy?
1: He's a Shia guy. And he was literally Iraq's most feared warrior. I mean, there'd been there'd books written about him. And he was there fighting on his motorbike with his big, you know, six-foot sniper rifle. And he, came, he agreed to speak to me. He didn't normally do journalist interviews, particularly not with, with, with Brits, that's for sure. Um, but he agreed to speak to me sort of soldier to soldier when I sort of told him I was in the, in the paras. And he said, well, I've you know probably killed some of your friends, as long as you don't mind that. And it was a big decision to go and sit with this guy who would had been not my personal enemy, but an enemy against my colleagues and friends. But you kind of have to take that emotion out of it. And it, ultimately I was in his country listening to his story.
0: Um, and by the way, now he was fighting against an enemy of, of, an en- yeah. so of he was the British w- we and, we were of on the the and of the Americans and of humanity.
1: Sure. So we were sat around the campfire and he told me a story. He killed 400-odd people. Um He was quite open about the fact that he was against, you know, us, the coalition invading his country. But we were on the the right side of history this time around, and he he thought that what he was doing was the right thing, which was to to rid his land of ISIS, which he was convinced was a creation of the 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 chaos of of of, you know ten years of war. And I think it was that moment that I thought, okay, enough's enough. I've heard. I've heard the story we should move on and it was probably about time actually because sadly seven days later he was himself killed by isis on that same battle on the last day of the war against isis so mm-hmm. there was some sad poetry in that but um we left we left that behind and carried on the journey and, and continued around the gulf and um and like i say, i didn't want this journey to be just about the conflict because that's what we associate so much with with the region um but to then jump out of Iraq and then be in, in southern Iraq, actually, we were in in amongst the the marshes around Nasiriyah and Basra. You know, this is the birthplace of civilization, Garden of Eden, and uh, and so on. And, and to be in amongst the the marsh Arabs, I don't know if you served down there with with these 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 very traditional tribes um, who who literally you know live amongst the marshes in these in these ancient um, ways of living in the huts, and they're called the mudhif and uh, you know, fishing and and farming buffaloes. I mean, it's like going back to biblical times. And it was that stark contrast, you know, Mm -hmm. um, which was, to me, really, really interesting. And I wanted to give that balance. And then to go from there into Kuwait and then to to Dubai, (laughs) where you suddenly got these skyscrapers and um, Friday boozy brunches. I wanted to show that whole spectrum of what life is like in, in this region. And it, and it was some really stark contrast. And to get your head into that and around that was was often quite difficult. I mean, Dubai
0: is just crazy. Right? It's crazy. Yeah. Like, especially when you talk about that contrast yeah. between Mosul completely destroyed and yeah. just a living hell for everyone that's up there. And then you go to Dubai, which it's is... Just... I mean... It's like it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> yeah, the entire city has been built in, like... Twenty years or something like that, and yeah. it's just everything is brand new, and to the the highest standards of luxury in everything. Mm-hmm. It's like, of you can't get more of a stark
1: contrast. It was a huge one. I mean, I I actually quite enjoyed going, and and it was a nice break having been in on this war zone for the for. for, for yeah, so you long.
0: probably got confused when you saw like a bed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's what I wanted to show. I wanted to show these these really stark differences and. and this traditional way of life, the Bedouin. You know, I, I, I studied all about Lawrence of Arabia and, and the old sort of Arabist explorers, people like Wilfred Thesiger, who crossed the empty quarter. And um, So to then go from there into Oman, which is a beautiful country, you've got these amazing, endless sand dunes and very traditional way of life there. And then into Yemen, again, a country that um, was incredibly difficult to get mm-hmm. into, but we somehow managed it. Um, it was, yeah, shown a fair representation.
0: You get done with this trip and then you go back. So, how long does it take when you get done with the trip? How long does it take for the production to have happen? And then, what did you do in this particular case? Did you now have to sell what you made? Well, to- exactly.
1: Yeah. So, uh, with this one, we, you know, I'd got my own team on the case, so we were editing on the go. I mean, we were kind of sending the rushes back, and then we got an edit. You know, got an edit suite, and we were doing it on on the go. So, I think it ended up being, I think we got back from the trip in February, March, and it was it was on TV, sort of. Two or three months later,
0: who so. you, did you go back to Channel Four? They and would sell no, it to no,
1: them? they they wouldn't take it. They, on they, principle, they on said, we, we don't want to talk to you." <laughs> but we sold it to Discovery Channel in the UK. And, oh, and you're then like it, what? <laughs> and then it got it got shortlisted for a broadcast award. So yeah, that was that was a real sense of uh, not just vindication, but you know, it, it it was it was a very very good documentary, and and for me, it took it back to the. The organic authentic roots of, of what my journeys ultimately are, are and is about.
0: is that one also like four or five hours four or five shows yeah
1: that one's five episodes as well
0: mm-hmm. were you profitable did you make money
1: we it, it washed its face just about <laughs> <laughs> we didn't make that much money on it but it was worth it just because it set the bar very very high
0: so you get done with that one how do you measure success on those in terms of i mean is it view like hey uh a youtube video gets whatever Mm. a million views how are you judging success or if it's hitting the people right or is it just feedback from people telling you hey that was outstanding i never understood the middle east like that now i do thank you is it how are you getting your your gratification.
1: So for me, the validation, it's not just about ratings, because obviously that's a lot to do with the the media landscape and the current politics of what's going on. It's changed enormously. Just in, in the seven or eight years that I've been doing this, you know, in terms of TV-wise, um, you know, it's changed enormously with, with the, you know, the amount of streaming platforms out there, the sheer, you know, just difference in demographics so Mm -hmm. people aren't watching tv live anymore they're watching on their laptops they're watching on their mobiles so and there's so many new new svods out there anyway so it's very difficult to sort of gauge in terms of ratings a lot of the streaming platforms don't even publish their viewing figures so i don't think and that for me was never really uh, as important as just doing what felt authentic um and and true to my own belief really And, and if there's a bit of feedback that's good and positive, then great. I mean, I've you know, I, of course, when you go to controversial places, you're going to get a bit of flack from different groups. You know, you didn't show my tribe and what we do, or especially if you go to, like, the whole Israel-Palestine question or if you're traveling in somewhere like Iran, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to tell everyone's story. You're never going to succeed in that. But for me, it was actually the the slightly um, indirect feedback. when When you get the head of a charity saying... Thank you, you know we've been trying to put our country on the map for the last twenty years and just one one of your episodes has doubled our revenue or something mm. like that or or you get individuals who call you and say "You inspired me to quit my job in finance and and and, uh, and uh, you know go and build a clinic in Nepal or whatever it might be and and as a result you know i've I've personally been asked to to be an ambassador for probably hundreds of ch- hundreds of charities I'm, I'm currently ambassador for about 20 or so charities and, and it's things like that that make it all worthwhile for me so i'm not really that bothered mm-hmm. about the ratings obviously it's nice to get good feedback and it's nice to keep getting asked to do these journeys but it's hard now to do bigger and better when, when i feel as <laughs> i've kind of done most of the journeys that i've really wanted to so i'm just trying to think about dive, like how do i diversify or, or stay true to my true to my sort of core beliefs um but also still enjoy what I'm doing and still have fun and 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 uh, and uh, yeah, try and find something that's that's appropriate and and useful.
0: Did the so the next one was walking with the elephants? Is that right? Sure. Did that come
1: after? That came after. Yeah. So eventually so they came mm-hmm. back. They came back with us, sort of saying, "Oh, can you make another one for us?" Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> so you kind of won strategically.
1: <laughs> so I won in the end, I guess, in that way. So um yeah, they came back and said, "We want to we want to do something else." and I've always been fascinated by conservation. Once again, there he goes again. It's like, I've always
0: been fascinated by conservation, so I was wondering.
1: <laughs> um, elephants have always been my thing. Um, when I was 10 years old, I, I sort of, um, I don't, I'd been begging my parents to take me to Kenya to, to go and see elephants. And, and they couldn't afford it because they were teachers. But eventually they did when I was, I think I was 14. And it was mind-blowing, you know, seeing Africa, the, the big skies, the savannas, the wildlife. So... I'd always wanted to try and incorporate a sort of an element of, of giving back in all my expeditions. So I always pair with a charity or, or raise an issue. I'm a high net worth, uh, uh, what do you call it, a high, a high profile supporter for mm-hmm. UNICEF. So I do, I do a bit of work with sort of children's charities along the way. Um, but conservation is, is, is something that I think is really important, not just for the sake of the animals, but, but habitat, um, keeping wilderness areas wild. And, and so I thought by going back to Africa, particularly Botswana in this case, um, there's a real opportunity here to, to showcase what's happening in the natural world. And by doing one of my sort of walks through a country, f- but this time following a, a herd of elephants on their ancient migration route, there's a, there's a new way of telling this story. <laughs> so I was walking with a herd of elephants for 650 miles across Botswana all the way to the Okavango Delta. Um, How many elephants? Well, there's 120,000 in Botswana. How many were you walking with? I mean, it just depended on the day, really. But we were getting pretty close Is to some like, pretty big groups. Like
0: yeah. 10 or like 100?
1: Oh, no, it could be 30, 50. Yeah, it's probably 50 was the maximum we saw at anyone. Did you one get time. to know some of them? You get to know the, some of the personalities, yeah, especially yeah. when they're flapping their ears and chasing after you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, no, I mean, it was, it was a really, really intense experience because you're, when you're in an alien environment... On the one hand, that you know you're on your you're on your guard the whole time. You've got to watch out because at any time, not just from the elephants, but you know a snake might when you when you're sort of out taking a dump. A snake <laughs> might come and bite you on the ass or whatever it might be. You've got to be really careful. We we were camping the whole time, staying inside the national parks. We got a very we, we, we were sort of greeted with them um, by the Botswana government with with the utmost respect because they said, look, you, you know, not only encouraging tourism but showcasing that Botswana is such a tourism uh, conservation success actually. And and so we were able to camp inside these national parks and, and really get to know the wildlife. But I'd say that as human beings coming from Africa, that's what we're designed. We're meant to be, you know, in that natural environment. So it did feel like a very natural journey as well.
0: And that was, that was the last big trip that you took? That brings us up to current date?
1: Pretty much. That was in the summer of 2019. Last year doesn't count because of COVID. Uh, Miss Rona. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that kind of brings us up to date on, on the sort of big journeys, really.
0: So that's prob- probably a pretty good place to stop, other than to say, so what <clears throat> your latest book that's about to come out is the book that I've been referring back to someb- somewhat today, The yeah. Art of Exploration. So what... What did, what made you decide you had, need to get another? book? Because this is like what did we what do we say? Was your ninth
1: book? This is my this is number nine. Um, if, for the last twelve months, having been somewhat lock, locked up, has given me plenty of opportunity to reflect on <laughs> some of the stories that I didn't put in my other books, and I wanted to sort of, I guess, give some of the lessons that I've learned personally, but not just that. Lessons from other explorers, from other key leaders and and reflect back on my time in, in the army as well. So it really, it's, it's a bit of a summing up uh, for me of the last sort of 10-15 years really of, of, of the lessons that I've learned and I've tried to put them into relevant themes and, and make them applicable and, and relevant to people in their daily life so it's not just me telling telling my war stories this is some of the stories hopefully will will inspire people to, to to hopefully you know integrate them into their own lives.
0: Yeah and I don't think I did a great job of what I selected to read in terms of the fact that you you're 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 kind of given your philosophy much through throughout much of the book, and you're explaining, you know, what lesson you learned. But you know, here's how I learned the lesson. Then you explain, well, this is what the lesson was, and this is how you can apply it. So, it's a it's a philosophical book as well, mm-hmm. not just like you said. A book I read stories. I read a lot of stories. <laughs> I like to read stories. But and you know, some of them I said here's some of the leadership lessons you, you learned, and I pointed out the the way that you lay those out so that people can and you. It's not just about leadership though, it's about decision making. You've got a whole section in there about how you sort of lay out decision making based on your military education and what you, so there's all kinds of things that you can pull from this book and they're all rooted in what you've been through, which is, again, that's what my all my books are just, hey, this is what I've been through and here's what I took away from it. Mm-hmm. So you, you did this exact same thing and, and anybody that's listening, you're gonna you're gonna pull a lot of lessons out of this book. Um, I scratched the surface. I let read less than five percent of this book on the air today. So uh, pick up the book. It's freaking yeah. I mean, it's just just chalk, as you would say in England. It's chock full of lessons learned. Um, where can people find you? I know you got Levison. Wood.com. What's Levison? It's, it's a family name, right?
1: It's my, that was my dad's name and his dad's name. It, it so you're just stuck to, with I'm, it. I'm the fifth, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, people can find out more about it. on. I've got an Instagram page, uh, Levison.wood. I've got Twitter. Um, and yeah, the new book um, is coming out in June in the UK. And hopefully it will be out in the US shortly after.
0: Yeah. We need to get the pre-order on Amazon, yeah. by the way. It, yeah like <laughs> you got about two weeks from today <laughs> to, to make that happen okay. uh echo charles yes any questions from
2: anything else uh remember when you lost your wallet remember do you think if you didn't lose your wallet you would not have gone into the military when you think about it
1: i think that the, you know the when i lost my wallet the, inspir- the you know the main lesson that i learned now was kind of told by this young lieutenant who found it was go and travel and and perhaps if i hadn't have traveled if i hadn't have got those expert early experiences if i hadn't have had the gun pulled on, on me by the the guy in the taxi in zimbabwe then maybe i wouldn't have enough stories to get me through the interviews that got me into the army so mm. who knows i mean hindsight is obviously a great thing but but yeah i think you know take opportunities when when they come come along um Say thank you to to people. You know, you never know. Be courteous, and it's 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 when you know writing back to that guy and just saying thank you for 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 handing the wallet back. You know, got me all those tips in the form of that six-page essay. So it's just little things like that. It's just it's never pass by an opportunity and never pass by an opportunity to to be thankful and grateful. And no matter how bad things get, there's always an opportunity in that. And so, like when I broke my leg and couldn't get in the special forces. I now look back and join the dots and think, actually, it was that. It was that. It, what I thought was a low point actually was a real opportunity to go and do something different.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy, huh? Because on the surface, you're like, dang, I lost my wallet. Because that sucks. <laughs> Confirmed. You lose your wallet. Oh, man. Brutal. And then, yeah, man, it opens up this whole thing. And it's like, dang, I'm kind of glad I did lose my wallet. Yeah, of course.
1: Day. And it's having a bit of faith that in every situation now, whenever I'm feeling, oh, you know, damn it that that's gone really badly. I remind myself of all the times that the bad situations, if you just view them right and have the right attitude then then you can turn defeat into victory and and I think that's what you've got to remind yourself. so whenever things go really badly, I try and just convince myself, even if it's slightly delusional, that this is a great opportunity
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so absolutely cool. true, man
0: absolutely true well. Like I said, probably a good place to wrap. We're <clears throat> approaching three hours right now. Uh, thanks for joining us, Thank absolutely. You. And and more important, thanks for your service. Thanks for your service to uh, Great Britain, one of our, maybe our most, maybe our strongest ally. Um, not only for your service, but your, your fathers and your grandfathers. I, I know I watched a video about your grandfather and, and it was just awesome. That, that, that he was out there like you holding the line against tyranny and evil. And thanks for sharing some of your stories. Thank I you for having Like I said, there's 10 books
1: <laughs>
0: I always try and prepare. I couldn't read 10 books getting ready for this thing. Um, to a ton of great stories and and the lessons that you you share and the experiences allow all of us to learn Through your vicariously through your explorations of the world, which you've made the best of, I don't recommend them, (laughs) but I'm glad you did them and I'm glad we can take away those lessons. Man, it's awesome! Awesome to meet you, man. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you both. And with that, Levison Wood has left the building. He left the building, he wasn't, he didn't have anything with him. So he may be going, I don't know, (laughs) he's going somewhere. We don't know where he came in, we don't know where he came from, we don't know where he's going, (laughs) but he is out there on the continual exploration with a pocket full of like, uh, you know, two paper clips.
2: And his wallet. A wallet that he found,
0: and we're good. So awesome to have him on here for sure we were talking about exploration. That's the name of his new book, The Art of Exploration. Echo, seems like exploration topic of the day. Can you recommend some ways we can explore getting better as humans? For sure. What do you got? So,
2: I think keeping ourselves capable. Good call. Really, you know. Look, we have a path. The path is hard. Not all the time, but it can be hard. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, we can deviate from that path. But the best way to deviate from the path is when we explore. If we explore as long as it's in the right direction. Don't slip off the path. Don't go backwards. Keep moving forward. Anyway, so while we're doing that, we are improving ourselves. We are working out. There's certain fundamentals to the path, we'll say. For sure. Working out physical uh, improvement, capability, strength. The more I'd learn about strength and strength training, resistance mm-hmm. training, you know, this kind of stuff, the more benefits start to reveal themselves. Yep. Did you know strength training? Resistance training is...
0: The best thing for your cognitive capacity as you grow older.
2: Yes. Yeah. I did know Did that. I say that last time?
0: You did. I remembered it. Why? Dang. Because I worked out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. And for your immune system so you either like I think you hold vitamin D more efficiently or yes Something with vitamin D where you can check, you know, anyway, so so stand the path in that way Anyway <laughs> through this path. You might need supplementation. Yes. All right, chocolate supplements only the best kind by the way
0: Yeah, you probably need unless you are Just dedicating 24 hours a day for meal prep and you have you're you're out shopping you're out harvesting your own meat you're out you're out in the garden
1: pulling sure. up carrots yeah.
0: Yeah. you know if that's what you're doing you can probably get away without supplementation look we Possibly. we know that we don't, we want to eat clean right if you're sure. eating clean you don't need it the chances of that are pretty small yeah very, they're pretty small. small and
2: again and there's a bigger picture going on as well. And woo-hoo. I'm a huge advocate of garden. I have a small little miniature garden. Not many things in there. We've oh, got some dang. tomatoes in there. Either way, it's not about my garden. All right. It's about efficiency. Apparently, it is about your g- garden. G- well, kind of. little kind humble g- brag. <laughs> little humble brag. <laughs> <laughs> Just some tomatoes. Nonetheless, Uh you know, if you, if gardening is your thing, then cool. But for a lot of us, if you dedicate all these hours, daily, weekly, whatever, meal prep or whatever, mm-hmm. it might become a little inefficient. So supplementation might be kind of the jam as far as efficiency goes. So good we news. We got some supplementation for you. Very good news. So what do we got? Stuff for your joints, stuff for protein, stuff for cognitive health, stuff for general health. Vitamin D3. Joint warfare, super, super oil. We've got some milk, additional protein. Cold war. By Cold the way, war immunity. Get that that humidity. <laughs> immunity. Immunity. <laughs> sure, all these things on Did you say Fuel.com. yeah, protein in the form of a dessert.
0: I authorized the next flavor of milk. What is that one? It's gonna be that banana cream. Oh yeah, yeah. no yes. name yet. no name yet. look and it's hard to take banana cream and turn that into something tactical <laughs> right. So if anybody's got some ideas on banana cream, like my my ears are open. yeah I'm ready for something cool you know about banana cream. let's know what you got.
2: That's interesting because that's not like an obvious flavor but once you say it, you're like, oh yeah, that's a legitimate flavor yeah even the, okay, so the pumpkin spice in my opinion, this is just my opinion. Kind of an obvious flavor. An obvious flavor, yes. But, and I'm like not that into it. It's Mm. fine. If that's my last flavor, when we do not drink it, no, probably not. But if, when it comes to banana, because I don't, like pumpkin pie, you know how certain people like really love pumpkin pie and that's it. No no pumpkin pie, no pie. I don't know
0: anybody like that.
2: Yeah, I know a couple
0: people. Really? Yes. But. Are you sure, bro? Are you exaggerating? You know someone that only eats pumpkin pie, and if it's not for (laughs) pumpkin pie, they won't eat any pie? Put it. That's where you're
2: at right now? Okay, so if I'm not mistaken. say, I exaggerated
0: a little bit, but you know what I mean. It's fine. Say that. Exaggerated a little (laughs) bit, but you know
2: what I'm saying. Because there's not
0: one single person on the planet that only eats just pumpkin pie 100%, and the other pies are zero. (laughs)
2: Yes, yes, there are pilgrims. Pilgrims eat pumpkin pie, that's all. Oh, wait, I think they eat apple pie. Too. Yeah, they do. Anyway. All right, so cool. The point is, banana cream pie, that is a legitimate one where it's like, hey, banana cream pie, and then there's mm-hmm. like everything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm one of those people. My dad's one of those people.
0: There you go. BC's in the game.
2: In the game fully. <laughs> so, banana cream milk, like, that's 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 good. It's yep. a good flavor.
0: Uh, we also got the drinks. I'm drinking one right now. I drink a lot of these drinks as a matter of fact yeah. discipline go in a can you can get it you can get it at wawa if you're on the east coast and for a little while they were there was a little brake pumping going on because the logistics train look logistics wins wars mm-hmm. it took me a little bit of time to get that logistics train straight now they said hey can you pump the brakes a little bit mm. guess what logistics train is a moving down <laughs> the tracks Roll into Wawa, roll into Wawa, clear out the shelves. They didn't want me saying that for a little while. Yeah, I'm back saying it. Go into Wawa, clear out the shelves, also vitamin shop. And by the way, all this stuff, all this supplementation, if you wanna subscribe to it, if you wanna get that krill oil showing up once a month, you wanna get that joint warfare showing up once a month, if you wanna go on subscription, shipping is free at originusa.com, at jockofuel.com, subscribe, Get it forever. And you know what we used to say on this podcast? Mm -hmm. Support the podcast as you support yourself. By the way, you are supporting the podcast when you support yourself with some supplementation.
2: Yeah, Yeah, 100%. And energy drinks that are healthy, that's kind of a thing, you know?
0: Well, not really. It's a thing with us. That's what I'm saying. It's not a thing with anybody else. I'm saying actually there's more- no one else that said, you know what? Oh, we want, our, we want our, our energy drink to be healthy. So we are going to go to the nth degree yeah. and pasteurize it. So we don't have to put any chemicals in it. Yeah. That's yeah. where we went. Who else is with us there? Oh, look around. You know who I see? Nobody. Yeah. In your- so it's not a thing. It's a thing for us.
2: That's what I'm saying. It is now. Okay. So what? And you're talking even from like a making standpoint where it's like, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is obviously good. But as a human being, I don't now, I don't have to go, hey, I need some energy. Hey, I'm going to pay the price a little bit, but I need that energy right now. So, hey, let's pay that yeah. price. You know,
0: there's no sacrifice. No
2: sacrifice. Yeah. I'll pound an energy drink. I don't, care. I don't even need energy right now. I just want to drink that energy drink. And guess what? I'm going to be more healthy afterwards. When it comes down to it, I'm going to be more healthy. And I got my energy drink. You done good. You made up
0: for your pumpkin (laughs) pie statement. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's what we're dealing with.
2: Also, at Origin USA, you can get American-made stuff. When I say
0: stuff, I mean jeans. American-made denim. Kind of a big deal. It's a real big deal. Because you're probably thinking, oh, I, you know, I'm, a, I'm supporting America. I got these iconic American jeans. And then you find out that your iconic American jeans are made in China. Yeah. Which is bad. Yeah. Get your American, get your iconic American jeans made in America. Yeah. It's kind Grown of Grown like, in America. Sewn
2: in America. You ever ate like a food or something and it says all natural? Mm-hmm. And then you find out, wait, it's not all natural though. No. Like I guess. It's like they play all
0: natural cheese puffs. Right. (laughs) Come on, (laughs) bro.
2: It's like they play you, you know, where it's like it's all natural, given the fact that it's not all natural. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? It's almost like that, where it's like, yeah, these iconic American jeans. Oh, yeah. Right. And yeah, maybe they're so it just depends on what you mean by all. It depends on what you mean by natural. Depends on what you mean by iconic. And it depends on what you mean by American. Bro, you're not playing that game over here. Origin, USA. USA is in the name. (laughs)
0: There's no play on words. There's nothing like that. No no trickery. No, Made in America without compromise. Jeans, boots, rash guards, T-shirts. What? What else do you want? Yeah, we got stuff. The geese. Did or, I say
2: geese? I think said rash guards, but yeah. yeah, all good. It's all included. Think you, can you say geese? We want to be
0: inclusive. Yes. yes, inclusive of the geese. Yeah. Gee, no gee. We're with
2: you, very much. So we support both. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. This is where you can get discipline equals freedom stuff. T-shirts, hats, hoodies, lightweight and heavyweight hoodies bunch of cool stuff on there, in my opinion. So, yeah, go there. See if you like something, get something. We also have a subscription situation going on with the shirts, additional shirts, additional designs. So, recently, one of the many designs that have been released. So, people have been calling me, personally calling me. Phone call, not text. Phone call. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, is that? Design still available. Uh, Are you going to sell that design? It seemed like people really liked the design Mm. It's true the answer is Maybe but to avoid having to call me or whatever Mm -hmm. just jump on that jump on that. It's called the shirt locker
0: Yeah, there's a new design every month that reminds me of the muster. So we have the muster they always sell out and three weeks out from the muster like someone I know will send me an email. Hey, I, I realized I didn't sign up for the monster. You know, I, I, it looks like it's sold out, but you know, I just need three seats. Yeah. <laughs> it's three, yeah, sure. and, and I'm like, hey, um, I I wish I could I wish I could help you. This is an actual limitation. Like the fire marshal says, this is how many people can be in there, and we have it filled. F- filled. Don't put yourself in that situation. Yeah. At least Don't I'll put yourself it. in that situation. Yeah, it's true. Yep. Maintain control. Yeah. Invest up front so you can relax later. That's why you leave a little bit early. Yeah. You leave a little bit early, like you like I was supposed to meet you here today.
2: Yeah.
0: Right? Sure. I left a little bit early. <laughs> why did I do that? So I wasn't stressing. Yep. I was just driving. Oh, mm. there's a you know, a little old lady crossing the street. She's taking a while. Am I honking? No, I'm just, take your time, ma'am. Play, no problem. Plenty There's a construction guy. He's got the little sign flipping, you know, right. stop. There's so, con- road construction going on. Am I mad at that guy? No, no I'm not mad at him. How I got plenty of time her? to get to the gym. Because you got on it early. Because I got on it. I invested early. Now, other people in this situation <laughs> didn't invest early.
2: No,
0: I get a text once I'm here that says, <laughs> you're all yeah, weird. you're going to be late. Yeah. Echo Charles is going to be late. Yeah. You, How do you feel about that?
2: Uh Well, you know, I was not stressing, but hey, that's just me, I guess.
0: Okay Maybe you need to add some stress (laughs) in your life then, bro.
2: (laughs) Well, in this particular situation, now that you brought it up, I didn't. You did. And that's fine. So, you know, while I was executing my sequence Mm -hmm. to uh, come down here and record. Okay. All right. I got tasked with the last minute thing. And I had to do that. I had to do that thing. So, yeah.
0: Okay. You know. Are you talking about a task that came from me? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay. Are you talking about a task that came from me at 7 o'clock in the morning or such?
2: Uh, well, you know, my my sequence um, uh, is very complex. Your wake-up <laughs> procedure. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. Check.
2: Either way. Get on this, the shirt. It's called the Shirt Locker. New shirt every month. It's on JockoStore.com. That's where you can get it. Mm-hmm. Go there. Get on it early. You won't have to worry about missing any any designs or, or anything like that.
0: You can subscribe to this podcast. There's a bunch of different places where it's hosted. We also have Jocko Unraveling, which I've been recording with Daryl Cooper. We're going deep into some crazy subjects. Mm-hmm unraveling history and seeing where how we got where we're at we have the grounded podcast we have the warrior kid podcast we also have the the underground jocko we're doing we're recording a little podcast there the reason that we're doing that is so that we don't have to have sponsors because why because we don't want sponsors because then they dictate what we can and can't do, which we don't like. We also don't want to have the platforms themselves be able to dictate what we can and cannot do. Now mm-hmm. look, we the platforms have been good to us so far.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Everyone's been okay with what we're doing, that's fine. What happens when they're not? What happens when they decide they're just gonna take and start injecting advertisements onto our podcast? Mm-hmm. And when I say our, I mean everyone.
2: All of our yeah.
0: What do we do then? If we don't have control, so we made, We made the Jocko Underground podcast, jockounderground.com. It costs $8.18 a month. Great way to support what we're doing. If you can't, look, if you can't afford it, we're, look, we are a podcast of the people. That's why this podcast is free. That's why this podcast doesn't have advertising other than what we're doing right now, which you could have turned off 48 minutes ago before Echo even started talking. (laughs) 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 But if you can't afford it, that's cool. Email assistance at jockawonderground.com. We'll still hook you up. That's what we're here for. We have a YouTube channel where Echo posts videos and you can subscribe to that one. Also, Origin USA has a, what is it? YouTube channel, is that what it's called?
2: Origin USA has a YouTube channel, yes, okay. technically at the end of the day, but it's like a series. You know how like you'd have a YouTube channel but it's super general. It's a general thing. But there's is like a ser it's like a series, uh, you know. Well that's Origin
0: H D. Right. That's a series.
2: Yeah, that's what
0: that's what you're talking about, okay. right? Yeah.
2: Because Origin H D is on the YouTube channel of Origin.
0: Or Origin USA. Yeah. Boom. There okay. You go. Well and and Echo makes a lot of those videos. And the ones that are really good are usually the ones I'm on the assistant uh, director. Psychological warfare,
2: yeah. It's an album. Tracks. You know, you need, you need Jocko to help you get past the moment of weakness. You're like, kind of like a therapist in a way, hmm. or what do you call it, like a life coach? Yeah, it's a life coach. You're a life coach because you know how life like coach a, with a
0: baseball bat,
2: <laughs> <laughs> essentially. No, the life. You know how like the life coach is The the what do you call the classic or the stereotypical situation is yep. like, hey, I'm about to. Uh, you know, I just quit smoking, and it's like, hey, I feel like, really feel like smoking. It's really, like, you know, on my mind. So you call your life coach, and they mm. tell you gently, like, why you shouldn't smoke. You're going to get you've, cancer. You've come so far and all this stuff. So Jaco has his own version of that, which is called psychological Warfare. So it's recorded. What you do is you get it's an album with tracks. where so Jaco tells you, hey, don't skip that workout. You've come this far. You can do it. Mm, maybe you of, need to make one of these.
0: No, I was very motivated, motivated by that. <laughs> <laughs> In his way, we'll just say. Also, we got Flipside Canvas. FlipsideCanvas.com, Dakota Meyer, making cool stuff to hang on your wall. We got a bunch of books. Look, all the books I talked about today uh, by Levison Wood. The latest one that should be available for pre-order right now. It's called The Art of Exploration. That's the one I was reading out of today. We got Final Spin, which is a... <clears throat> Look, it's a novel, because it's not specifically true, yeah. but it's also not a book. It's like a, it's just a whole different gig. Final Spin, if you want, it's a new art form. Yep. That's what Echo Charles just whispered in the back. You might have nailed it. You might have nailed it. <laughs> sure. It's a new art form of writing, and it's in a book called Final Spin, which is coming out. If you want to get the first a dish, Better order it now. Leadership Strategy and Tactics. The Code, The Evaluation, The Protocol. Discipline Freedom Field Manual. Way of the Warrior Kid one, two, three, and 4. Mikey and the Dragons. About Face. I wrote the forward on the new one. And of course, Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. I have a leadership consultancy called Echelon Front. We solve problems through leadership. You can go to echelonfront.com if you want me and my team to come and work with your company. That's what we do. We have EF Online. Online training leadership—you can get it anywhere. You can get it on your phone. We're on there all the time. We're doing live Q and A's. We got a bunch of courses to take. It's freaking awesome. We got the muster 2021. We are executing. Last time we didn't execute because I got Miss Rona. <laughs> this time, so I'm good now. We're ha- it's happening. Orlando, May 25th and 26th. Phoenix, August 17th and 18th. Las Vegas October 28th and 29th everything that we've done has sold out go to extremeownership.com if you want to come don't be emailing me six days out saying you need three I hey, sorry I didn't get to you but I just need three seats i can't I, I can't help you sometimes in the seal teams I would tell guys like hey if this if you do if you make this mistake I can't help you right. you want to do something look, look you do some dumb stuff I got you mm-hmm if you do something at this level of stupidity, I can't, I, there's literally nothing I can do. Don't be doing dumb shit. Yes, sir. EF Battlefield. Uh, this is learning lessons as as we walk historical battlefields. Just did recently did Gettysburg. We're planning others in the future. Again, go do... Go to echelonfront.com. Look for events on there if you want to come and meet us. You want to have dinner. You want to walk the battlefield. You want to do Q&A face-to-face. We look forward to seeing you at those. If you want to help service members active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She has a charity organization helping out all these groups all over the place. If you want to donate or get involved, go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want more of my perpetual pronouncements or you need more of Echo's convoluted conversations, you can find us on the interwebs on Twitter, Instagram, which Echo only calls the gram. And Facebook, Echo is at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And for Levison, check out levisonwood.com. His Twitter is levisonwood. His Instagram is levison.wood. And also he's on Facebook at levisonwood. And thanks once again to Levison for, for joining us. <laughs> again, sharing some of the stories with us. You could, you could crack open any one of those stories and find a gem. And, and thanks to Levison for your service and thanks to your father and your grandfather. And to the fierce island nation of the United Kingdom, thanks for standing beside us for so long in the fight against evil. And thanks to all the servicemen and women and veterans around the world that put on the uniform and shoulder the weight of freedom with your service and sacrifice. And to people here at home in service, police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, border patrol Secret Service and all the first responders out there, you don't get thanked enough for what you do. So thank you for doing it. And to everybody else out there, you already know what you know. You already know what you know. You've been there. You've done that. You've seen what you've seen. Don't stay in the same spot do like levison wood does literally and metaphorically go out go go see go do go live go explore and until next time this is echo and jocko out